Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Thanksgiving special of Air Checks, where we will be featuring two three-hour episodes of Thanksgiving programming. In a special Thanksgiving Day broadcast, Gleason L. Archer, Francis R. Stoddard, Frederick A. Van Fleet, and Lee O. Wright represent the General Society of Mayflower Descendants and its state branches, as they narrate the history of the pilgrims and their spread into the rest of the country. The production was broadcast by the Columbia Network, W. A. A. B which became CBS. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Here is the Society of Mayflower Descendants as broadcasted November 28, 1935. The Columbia Network, in collaboration with the General Society of Mayflower Descendants, takes pleasure in presenting a special Thanksgiving Day program. This holiday of the harvest season originated in Plymouth, Massachusetts in November 1621 in celebration of the first harvest in America by the Pilgrim Fathers. It is appropriate, therefore, that the Society of Mayflower Descendants, a nationwide organization, every member of which can trace ancestry to a Mayflower passenger, should arrange this noteworthy celebration. This program begins in Boston and marches across the country as far as the early morning hours will permit, picking up programs of celebration in New York City, Cleveland, Ohio, and ending in St. Louis, Missouri. The choral music here in Boston will be furnished by the choir of the Zion Lutheran Church under the direction of Carl L. Polofsky. The first speaker is one whose voice is familiar to radio listeners in all parts of the nation, himself a Mayflower descendant, Gleason L. Archer, Dean of Suffolk Law School, Counselor General of the Society of Mayflower Descendants. But first we shall hear the choir singing, The Breaking Waves Dashed High. Thank you. 
now it is our pleasure to introduce Dean Gleason L. Archer. The breaking waves still beat upon the long sandbar that guards the harbor of historic Plymouth. But the Mayflower family, once sheltered on the Plymouth hillside, has now scattered to the far ends of the earth. The old-fashioned New England homecoming of sons and daughters and grandchildren to gather at ancestral board on Thanksgiving Day is no longer possible. Forty-one years ago, however, in December 1894, the Society of Mayflower Descendants was established in the state of New York. Two years later, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania organized state branches. And thus the procession began. Twenty-seven state societies from Maine to California are now represented in the General Society of Mayflower Descendants. Thousands of men and women have proved their descent from Mayflower passengers and have joined the society. But there are tens of thousands more who have equal right to blood fellowship in the Mayflower family. In opening this great program today, I wish to consider with you the beginnings of migrations from the original home firesides of Plymouth, the scattering of families, and the spreading of pilgrim influence with its resultant leaven of democracy to an ever-widening circle of American colonization. That first settlement, as you know, during its formative years, was the only one on the New England coast. The forests round about Plymouth were peopled by savage beasts and savage men. Dangers encompassed them on all sides. There was every reason for the requirement that all colonists, whatever their daily activities might be, must return to the protection of the Plymouth Palisades at night. This legal requirement as the settlement grew in numbers, had the very important effect of causing the village of Plymouth to become thickly studded with houses. It made for community life. Then, since the first comers reared large families of children, Plymouth soon became a miniature city, vibrant with life and pulsing with activity. Small wonder, therefore, that the leaders of Plymouth Colony should guard with jealous eyes the spiritual and social life that had grown up in their village. Small wonder that they joined with Governor Bradford in opposing every effort to break the family circle. Yet that breaking away from Plymouth, however saddening to the heart, was inevitable, inescapable. The children of these hardy pioneers had in their veins the same pioneer blood that had caused their fathers to forsake the old world and to brave the unknown dangers of America, to blaze new trails, to plant new villages, to clear forest tracts in an ever-extending westward march was an urge of the blood that could not long be denied. Listen to these words of lamentation from Governor Bradford himself in referring to the first breaking away from Plymouth in the year 1632, quotation, by which means they were scattered all over the bay quickly, and the town in which they had lived compactly till now was left very thin, and in a short time almost desolate. 
And if this had been all, it had been less, though too much. But the church must also be divided. And those that had lived so long together in Christian and comfortable fellowship must now part and suffer many divisions. First, those that lived on their lots on the other side of the bay called Duxbury. They could not long bring their wives and children to the public worship and church meetings here, but with such burden that growing to some competent number, they sued to be dismissed and become a body of themselves. And so they were dismissed about this time, though very unwillingly. End of quotation. Thus began that process of restless expansion through which the children of the first comers to Plymouth Pioneers in their own right settled town after town until all of southern Massachusetts came under the spell of the Settlers' Acts. Then we find the same pioneer stock overflowing the borders of Massachusetts into other states and countries to become a great multitude. The next speaker on this program will be Colonel Francis R. Stoddard, speaking from New York City, in behalf of the Mayflower Society of the State of New York. The Society of Mayflower Descendants in the State of New York sends thanksgiving greetings to the town of Plymouth, Massachusetts, where our pilgrim forefathers began the great task of civilization in the northern section of the United States. It is my task to outline briefly the story of how the first pioneers of Mayflower lineage came to dwell within the borders of New York State. The Hudson River was discovered by the Dutch in 1609, and a trading post was built by them on the island of Manhattan in 1613. In 1620, when the passengers of the Mayflower landed at Plymouth, New York was yet only a trading post. In 1624, 30 families of Walloons settled on western Long Island. In 1625, the Dutch West India Company Finding this settlement to be successful brought over Dutch settlers. It was not until 1626 that all the island of Manhattan was purchased from the Indians. Since most of the settlers came from Holland, the Dutch traits and characteristics prevailed in the settlement of what was called the New Netherlands. The pilgrims were well acquainted with the Dutch because of the residence of many of them for many years in Leiden. Governor Bradford and certain of the others spoke Dutch almost as well as English. It was therefore natural that trading should take place between Plymouth and the Dutch settlements. In March 1627, messengers arrived at Plymouth from the governor of New Netherlands with letters written in Dutch and French. In these letters, the Dutch congratulated the Plymouth settlers on their prosperous and commendable enterprise, tendered their goodwill and friendly services, and offered to open and maintain with them a commercial intercourse. Governor Bradford and the Council of Plymouth sent an obliging answer to the Dutch expressing a thankful sense of the kindness which they had received in their native country and a grateful acceptance of their offered friendship. In September 1627, the Plymouth settlers received a visit from Isaac de Razier, Secretary of New Netherlands. After he had arrived at the Plymouth trading post at Manamut, Governor Bradford sent a boat for him, and he arrived in Plymouth with a noise of trumpeters in the Dutch style. The people of Plymouth entertained him and his company during several days. Some of the Plymouth people accompanied the Dutch secretary on his return to Manamet and purchased of him some of the commodities which he had for sale. This visit began friendly intercourse between the two colonies. Isaac Allerton, one of the Mayflower passengers, had been a Burgess of Leiden. 
He eventually settled in New Amsterdam, where he was a distinguished merchant and a member of the Council of Eight, selected to assist the Dutch governor. After the English captured New Amsterdam, the first English mayor of the newly named New York was Thomas Willett, formerly of Plymouth and an associate of the Pilgrims. Other Plymouth families soon brought the Mayflower stock to New York. The vessel commanded by Captain John Dickinson, who had married a daughter of John Howland of the Mayflower, was wrecked on Long Island. Liking the country, he returned to settle there, and many of his descendants are still residing in New York. John Pratt, grandson of Diggory Priest of the Mayflower, settled in Oyster Bay, Long Island, and many of his descendants are still with us. Another distinguished descendant of the Pilgrims was the daughter of President John Adams and a sister of President John Quincy Adams, who married a New York man and many of whose descendants are here. Many presidents of the United States have had Mayflower ancestry, including the present president, who previously served as governor of New York. The descendants of the Pilgrims have intermarried with the New York families. Among the distinguished New York men who have married Mayflower descendants are Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes of the United States Supreme Court and John D. Rockefeller, Jr., the great philanthropist. In almost every community, there are descendants of the Pilgrims who are trying to carry out the patriotic tradition of their forebears. But now my allotted time has expired. The next voice that you will hear will be that of Frederick A. Van Fleet speaking in Cleveland, Ohio, in behalf of the Mayflower family in the great state of Ohio from the studios of station WHK in Cleveland. ...in the radio homecoming of Thanksgiving Day. The thought of Plymouth across the centuries, of the trials and tribulations there endured by our courageous forefathers, is an inspiration to us all. Today, by the magic of radio, I am privileged to stand at the ancient fireside and tell the story of how the descendants of Mayflower passengers spread out into the state of Ohio. It is a story that is easy to tell because the early history of what is now the state of Ohio was marked by two great development enterprises. The first of these was conducted by the Ohio Company, whose activities have made an historic shrine of the little city of Marietta, first capital of the Northwest Territory. The second was by the Connecticut Land Company, on whose property was founded the beginnings of the great industrial empire of the northern part of the state. Leaders in the Ohio Company development largely men who had been officers in the War of the Revolution, came from all parts of the East, and lines of direct connection with the Mayflower cannot be taken for granted. Although the fact that one of the boats on which the goods of the first expedition were floated down the Ohio River to Marietta was called the Mayflower, is in itself quite definite indication that Ohio Company pioneers were of pilgrim descent and were proud of it. On the other hand, the development of the Connecticut Land Company was distinctively a child of Connecticut, and it might almost be said, of pilgrim parentage, because Plymouth was still a young settlement when the tide of migration to which Dean Archer has referred began. And so much of this migration was into Connecticut that it became almost a second pilgrim state. Those who remember their colonial history will recall that the grant of land given by the founders of Connecticut to the founders of Connecticut by the English crown conveyed title not only to the seacoast between established northern and southern boundaries, but to all the land between those boundaries to the west indefinitely. Had that grant been sustained to this time, Connecticut today would have had both Atlantic and Pacific coastlines and would stretch across the width of the country. 
When the Revolutionary War was won, the new federal government set about clearing up conflicting state lines, and Connecticut surrendered its claim to vast reaches of western territory in exchange for a definite deed to 30,000 acres of land, known as the Western Reserve, which was promptly sold to the Connecticut Land Company for 40 cents an acre. This was the land which General Moses Cleveland and his men surveyed, and on which they founded this city which bears his name. This was the land, too, in which countless Connecticut families, in whose breasts still burned the pioneering spirit which had led their pilgrim ancestors across unknown waters to the refuge of Plymouth Harbor, sought out new homes for themselves. Others came, too, but I think it may be said without fear of contradiction that the Western Reserve has a pilgrim heritage which has vastly influenced its character. If we were to study the history of the state of Ohio exclusively in the light of its Mayflower descendants, we would find that for a century and a half, pilgrim pioneers and their descendants have drawn, through ties of blood or friendship, others of the same descent who have brought with them the sturdy spirit of self-reliance, the devotion to education, and the insistence on the right of self-government, which were characteristic of our Mayflower ancestors and are characteristic of Ohio. The story of Ohio is the story of the nation. It is a story of the pioneer, unafraid, a story of dauntless men and women, to whom the dangers and privations of the wilderness were but a small price to pay for the great boon of freedom and the right of self-government. Not all of these men and women had pilgrim blood, but they did follow pilgrim ideals. When all is said and done, it must be admitted by any student of our history that when French and Spaniards, Dutch and adventuring English were coming to this country for land or furs, <coughs> or in the hope of trade, conquest, or treasure, the pilgrims of the Mayflower were the first to come here for the sole purpose of making a permanent home where they could live their own lives, worship their God in their own way, and govern themselves. Their principles were their priceless gift to America. It is because of those principles that we are proud to prove our kinship to them. Much more could be told of our pioneer beginnings in Ohio but I must give place to another. The next speaker will be Dr. Lay O. Wright, elder of the Missouri Society, speaking to you from the city of St. Louis. The Mayflower Society of the state of Missouri, speaking in its own behalf and in behalf of the great western portion of the United States, which by the early hour of this broadcast alone prevents from speaking on the network, sends loving greetings to the ancestral home on the Plymouth hillside. How did the restless feet of western marching pioneers of Mayflower lineage come to Missouri and beyond to the western plains, to the Rockies, and to the Golden Gate? The story is the saga of America. Missouri was the great gateway to the west, and more pioneers migrated over its soil in finding their western homes than over any other state west of the Mississippi. In the span of our allotted moments, it is impossible to follow completely the trends of migration in regard to motives and locations. But a few specific examples taken from the Missouri Society will be sufficient and typical. Some migrations were direct from Massachusetts, and some, following the progressive frontier, have had two or more resident homesteads before reaching the West. 
A direct line of the Alden family was lured to the fertile soil of Illinois. And from there, a family of seven sons, doctors and lawyers, have scattered to states westward to California. A member of the Richard Warren family settled in the same state four generations ago, and his son established a flourishing mercantile system in the lead belt of Missouri before the Civil War. The spirit of Elder Brewster was maintained by one of his descendants who crossed the Rocky Mountains in 1836 to begin a 40-year work as a missionary to the Indians in Oregon and Idaho. As early as 1838, a member of the William Bradford family laid claim to 1,000 acres in the Arcadia Valley of Missouri to be later divided among his nine children. A graduate of Yale from the Stephen Hopkins family came to establish a Midwestern college. The Isaac Allerton family is now represented by a member who has become prominent in the education of the blind of our state by his own necessity. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That the glory and greatness of all our descendants is in our hands. Preserve in all their purity. Refine, if possible, from all their alloy. Those virtues which we this day commemorate as the ornament of our forefathers. Let us invite in ardent supplication to the founder of nations, the builder of worlds, that the dearest hopes of the human race may not be extinguished in disappointment and that the last may prove the noblest empire of time.
have been listening for the past half hour to a special Thanksgiving Day program given under the auspices of the General Society of Mayflower Descendants, a nationwide organization of men and women who have proved their lines of ancestry back to passengers who landed at Plymouth in 1620. The first speaker on the program was Dean Gleason L. Archer of Suffolk Law School, Counselor General of the Society and Chairman of its Radio Committee. Dean Archer spoke from Boston. The choral numbers from the Boston studio were rendered by the choir of the Zion Lutheran Church. Colonel Francis Russell Stoddard was the speaker from New York City. Frederick A. Van Fleet spoke from Cleveland, Ohio. And the concluding speaker, Reverend Dr. Lee O. Wright of St. Louis, Missouri. America the Beautiful was sung by the choir of the Giddings Presbyterian Church of St. Louis. That was the Society of Mayflower Descendants as broadcasted November 28, 1935 W. A. A. B. and the Columbia Network. Gene Parker Shep Shepard Jr. was an American storyteller, humorist, radio and TV personality, writer, and actor. With a career that spanned decades, Shepard is known for the film A Christmas Story in 1983, which he narrated and co-scripted, based on his own semi-autobiographical stories. Here is the Gene Shepard show on war November 29, 1967, entitled, The Hunting Story. Sitting Ducks. The WOR time now is 11.15. Time for The Gene Shepherd Show. friends. You have for once in your crummy, miserable life, that poor little pockmarked thing that you carry around inside of you, for once you've tuned to the right spot of the dial at the right time. And if you want to hear high comedy in the highest, most exquisite sense, uh, so exquisite that it's almost tasted, you've come to the right point. 
I have a tape tonight that is a full-blown, total, complete, unadulterated gas. It was made by one of the guys who works the show with me here, Larry Londino, who's an engineer. Like true engineers, he's got a one-track mind, and wherever he goes, he takes his little tape recorder. Now, that can be very embarrassing, but nevertheless, uh, he does it. <laughs> it does. Uh, I'll tell you, a tape recorder nut is even worse than a candid camera nut, because in a way, sound is far more descriptive than pictures. And I would like to say this. It is my considered opinion, as a worker in the wheat fields of communication, that... Uh, a well-edited piece of tape will do more than 400,000 feet of color TV film. This tape was made by Larry. Now, it was made a week or so ago, and uh, it was made on the opening day of a very important season. Now, for those of you who don't know that some men live by seasons, other men live by years. The seasons vary. Now, for example, I know one guy who lives for one week of the year. Now, this guy happens to be a fishing nut. Early in May, in Maine, the landlocked salmon season opens for fly casting. Well, he rushes up to Maine. He freezes his you-know-what off. You know, the snow is still eight feet deep in Maine at that time of the year. And he gets a cold, and uh, his sinuses back up on him. He has terrible sinuses. This guy, from one week, this guy's sinuses are backed up all the way to December, just from that one week in May. And he rushes all the way up there, and he takes out his casting rod, and he goes out like mad, and the ice flows are all around him. And he has this Indian guide, and for one week, he flays the surface of this poor, innocent lake. Never catches anything. He has never caught a landlocked salmon, but that doesn't matter. Then the week is over, and his year is done. He goes back home, and he thinks about next year. That's a seasonal man. Now, there is the kind of guy who lives for football. That's a seasonal man. One of the nuttiest of all the seasonal nuts is the duck hunter. And if you have never seen a duck hunter in full flight with the heat on him, as a matter of fact, a duck hunter in heat is a sight. I mean, with a canvas jacket, these guys, they read magazines and they buy books and they sit around all year and polish that 12-gauge shotgun, the dream dreams of these beautiful V-flights of mallards coming in the dawn. In fact, you see pictures on field and stream, sports afield, of these duck hunters standing up in a canvas boat. You see, and they're dynamic-looking guys, square-jawed, and they are apparently in a trackless wilderness. Have you noticed that? The pictures always shows them. You see all around them cattails and reeds. And you see coming in at 4 o'clock. You see coming in at 150 feet. You see this magnificent flight of canvas backs. All of them weighing 7 pounds. And all of them are in this perfect formation. And these guys are standing up. And the dogs are waiting to go out and catch the birds, you know, and bring them in and all that stuff. But the point is that the duck hunter always sees himself in a sylvan setting. He sees himself alone, too. He sees himself hunting these ducks in a kind of a wilderness like the Great Swamp of New Jersey. And incidentally, for those of you who don't know anything about ducks and the duck season, the duck season always opens at dawn, at 6 a.m. It's not really dawn. It's a little light, but it's dawn. It's dark. And duck hunters go out on the opening day. Now, no good duck hunter, I mean, ever misses opening day. I mean, really, seriously, this, this is like one of the devout not making the scene on Easter. You just don't miss this day. This is a big day. And so duck hunters have been known, seriously, they've been known to leave their wives, they've been known to uh, shoot their kids who tried to prevent them from going. Oh, yeah, the, the madness is unbelievable. And so as the duck season opens, the night before, duck hunters prepare. They've got their license, they've got their canvas coats out, they've got them all loaded with 12-gauge shotgun shells. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, they get in their cars and they go out into the wilderness. 
And it's usually cold, 6 o'clock in the morning. They usually get out there around 4 or 5. And they get out into their blind. Well, now, Larry Landino, and, uh, he's not a duck hunter particularly, but he was with these duck hunters. And uh, he took along his tape recorder, just for, you know, just kicks. And so at 4 o'clock in the morning, they were sitting in a little boat. There were three of them. And they were way out in Jersey somewhere, out in the swamps, out in the lake out there. Way up somewhere near Dover, out in Jersey, out in the hills there. And he said it was so black out there, dead silence. And the three of them are sitting in a boat. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. They've got their 12-gauge shotguns already. They've got their dogs. And the silent water is all around them. And Larry said he had this feeling that they were so alone in the wilderness that there wasn't another person within 500 miles of them. Remember, the duck season opens at exactly 6 a.m. It is now 5.45. And they're beginning to get a little anxious. And it's exciting. All year long, they've been waiting for this moment. It is now 5 minutes to 6 and from way off in the distance, they can hear the sound just about a minute and a half before six. A warden, off in the distance, way off somewhere, fired off a gun to show them that the duck hunting season was now in full flight. And all the while, his tape recorder is running. He thinks they're by themselves up in the wilderness. There's not a soul. And now you will hear the exact instant that the duck season opened in New Jersey about two weeks ago. Remember, it is 6 a.m., and Larry thinks he's all by himself. There <laughs> just three guys himself, you know, two other guys. Suddenly, over the far hill, in the bleak dawn, appears a duck, and we hear... Here they come. Here they come, baby. Here they come. Here they come. Get ready. Here they come. Here they come. Here they come. saying one of the great moments, though, came when he was sitting down in that little boat there, and the guns are going off all around him, and the lead, the little pellets kept falling down, <laughs> so it was coming down like rain <laughs> from the sky, hit them on the hat and all that. <laughs> huh? Well, there you heard the opening of duck season in Jersey. And Larry said there was more flame from all around in the distance. He thought they were alone, you know. And uh, for those of you who want to know the results, well, they got two ducks. One walked into camp. He gave himself up. Yeah, and the other one had been drinking and never did get off the water. But the <laughs> listening to that scene, I'll tell you, it just, it just reminds you once again, being a duck in Jersey is hell. It just ain't easy. That reminds me, speaking of sitting ducks... This is a is a is a hunting story. Whenever I ever I pick up, I I do a great deal of writing these days for Field and Stream, and uh, I get the magazine and I read it. That comes in the office, and I read about these intrepid hunters. And have you ever noticed almost every story uh, in in these outdoor magazines begins with a Charlie and I got into the car at dawn 
and we headed out into the wilderness. Little did we realize that 15 minutes later we were to discover this bass lake that had never been discovered by man. In fact, the foot of man had never stepped upon these shores. Well, five minutes after Charlie got his tackle out of the back of the station wagon, the bass were chasing him through the woods, attempting to steal his bassarino from him. <laughs> you know, they were jumping into the creel. They never have the story of the other way around the story of tunnel and abject failure, which is more like what most of us actually have happened to us. And also the strange passions that come to light in the various pursuits that can be found out in the primal wilderness. Oh, yeah. For example, I'm, I'm up in Maine one time. Now, you know, I'm a man of the city. Now, I live in New York. I'm up in Maine one time, and I'm standing on the shore of this lake. And all of a sudden, I see out in the water there, I see a dot moving across the surface. And I take my glasses, and I look through the glasses, and I'll be doggone if it isn't a moose. And there's a moose out there swimming out the water, and he's about 400 feet across. You know, this fantastic head. Like, the antlers alone must have stretched 30 feet. He had a wingspan on him like a DC-7, you know. And he is out there swimming in this water, and behind him is a dog swimming. And this dog must have weighed 12 pounds. And the dog is going, ow, ow, ow. And the moose is swimming along across the water, and he keeps turning his head back and looking at this dog. And I thought to myself, dog, maybe your concept of the moose world is only abstract. But if you ever catch up with that moose, it's going to be not abstract any longer, but it's going to be real. As a matter of fact, I don't know of any more ferocious creature than a moose. And then I thought to myself, is this like man? <laughs> you know, he himself is pursuing things which he does not really know the meaning of and the final implication about. I learned these things early as a kid. The old man had these friends, Zudok, Harry Gertz, that crowd, and, uh, <laughs> well, they, they uh, whenever any season came around, these guys would take part in it, but they took part in it the way office workers take part in stuff. For example, the uh, fishing season would come along, and they'd get all excited, and they'd talk a lot about it. And finally, late in July, after the season was open for seven months, they would go out and rent a rowboat made out of lead at 2 o'clock in the morning and row out to the middle of Cedar Lake and drink Atlas Crocker beer and swear, tell dirty stories, and fish for crappies. This would extend from about 2 a.m. to about 2.45 a.m. when Gertz would fall in. They would pull Gertz back in the boat, and then they would row back into shore and finally get all the slimy water out of Gertz and all the Atlas Prager out of them, and then they would come home, and that would be fishing. <laughs> and they always talk about going fishing again. See? Well, they were that kind. Well, one day they decided they were going hunting. They're all going to go hunting. Well, my old man never went hunting. The only thing he ever hunted, you know, ex-pool shark. And his idea of hunting was going down to the pool room and looking for a mark, that kind of thing. But they're going to go hunting. So they all go out and they borrow these uh, canvas coats where they put the 12-gauge shotgun shells in. The old man borrows a gun. They take off in the Oldsmobile. Gertz, Zudok, my old man, and a guy named Sherby, <laughs> Mr. Brewer. Now, all of them take off into the dawn. Well, they did not take into account the fact that Mr. Bruner had been drinking for at least seven months prior to this time. And they got him out. He's sick in the car all the way out. Uh, this is uh, later. This came out. See, and They arrive at the place where they're going to hunt. And they discovered after they got out there that they had to have licenses. This is something that never occurred to them. And uh, there was no place to buy licenses because they were in a swamp. So they decided, well, the hell with hunting. And they opened up the back of the Oldsmobile and they took out this case of beer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you exactly what happened. Well, they're sitting on the shore of the swamp drinking a beer, 
My old man says, you know, it's funny. I remember him saying, he says, he never realized that beer was so good at 4 o'clock in the morning. And so they're sitting there, and it's dark, and they're drinking beer, and raising, you know, cane and yelling and hollering. And all of a sudden, out of the darkness, they hear these shots going off, just like the tape you heard. And the shots start coming off, and these guys are watching, and it's getting dawn, and they can see the other hunters out there. And, of course, they don't have any license. They're very law-abiding types. And anyway, they were about three-quarters bagged by this point. They lost all interest in hunting. <laughs> they were just sitting there having a good time. Sherby was telling his jokes, and Zudok was telling the rotten jokes. The worst, of course, of them all was Harry Gertz. Harry Gertz had a catalog of dirty jokes. Well, as a matter of fact, he had them in categories. You know, like the Sears Robot Company put stuff in categories like uh, underwear, like uh, farm equipment. All he had various jokes. He said, "You want to hear? You want to hear an Irish joke?" And somebody said, "Yeah, tell me." Then he tell us terrible Irish joke. Somebody said, uh, "You want to hear a camel joke?" <laughs> he, had, he had jokes that you couldn't even tell. It was so bad. And so Gertz is out there telling the jokes. And they're sitting around. Now it's about 8 o'clock in the morning, and somebody says, how about let's get in some breakfast? So they decide they're going to have breakfast. And so they're loading up the car. They're putting all their guns back. When all of a sudden, out of the sky, out of the grayness of the sky, comes a bird. And this bird comes flying down. He's been winged by somebody four miles away, and he just comes, plunk, and he lands right on the bank, right by Zudok. And there's the bird. It's a duck. And Zudok says, it's a duck. And Sherwood says, I'll be damned, it is a duck. And the four of them stand there looking at the duck. And this is the way the scene was later pieced together by the survivors. And he says, it's a duck. And Sherby says, he's dead. Somebody shot him. <laughs> There's a duck planter. <laughs> and Gert says, yeah. And then my old man, and it was my old man, I must admit, was the one that started the whole scene. The old man says, let's take it. So Sherby says, yeah, we didn't shoot him. So, so, so he just came down here. What are you supposed to do, leave him there? And so they grab the duck, and now they're going to take this duck. They're going to bring it home and have breakfast. They're going to make the duck for breakfast. Somebody, you know, how, you know how guys, when they get a snoot full, they think of all this terrible stuff they're going to do. So they're going to come home, and they're going to make a duck. Have a duck for breakfast. Ah, this is a duck. Why would they be surprised at home? We come home with a duck. And so they stick the duck in the back of the car with what would remain of the Atlas Crocker, and they start driving down this corduroy road away from the swamp. They had enough hunting for the year anyway. You know, they didn't want to hunt. You know, they just want to sit around and drink beers, what they want to do. So they drive over to corduroy road, and they're yelling and hollering, and Zudok is drunk. He's falling in and out of the car, and they finally get Gertz back in again. He runs out in the bushes. You know, I had to heave a little bit. And so they get him back, and they're driving along, and they finally get out on the highway, and they make a right turn when suddenly a car materializes ahead of them, and two guys with big hats get out. And one of them walks back towards the car and says, Hey, you guys, let's, let's see your licenses. And Zudok says, We ain't got no licenses. We didn't even hunt, for crying out loud. You see, you didn't hunt? And they had come out of the swamp, see, and they are all carrying 12-gauge shotguns, and they got these coats all over them. Of course, the coats still had the shotgun shells stuck in them, and a lot of beer all over the front of them and other stuff. They brought potato chips and all that, you know. So he says, we ain't been hunting. We don't have no license. We just drink some beer. We come back here. Get out of the way. We're going to go home and have breakfast. You'll make a duck. And the guy says, you're going to do what? Oh, I'll make breakfast. Well, with that, the guy says, get out of the car, you four. Out gets the old man, Zudok, Sherby, and Gertz. 
four of them stand there, you know. Bruner comes out of the bushes. He's been running along behind a car. Now they get five. And so the guy says, okay, so let me look in the car. So the two of them start from one end of the car to the other, and they start going through the car. And Zudok is saying, wait, Benatton, where's the shot? Where's the matter with you? And the trunk goes up, and out comes the mallard. It's as dead <laughs> as a mallard ever gets. And, you know, and he's peppered with the shot. You know, the boy, beautiful shot. Whoever it was got him right in the, you know, the vital spot. And he holds this thing up, and, and Gertz takes one look at it. and says, that's all right, Doc. We didn't shoot him. He just came down and fell in a trunk. Just came down out of the sky like that. Well, I don't have to tell you the rest of it. They take the five of them to the local justice of the police. They line them up. And all five of them were standing there protesting like mad, which, by the way, did not help their case any, because all five of them maintained that they had not fired a shot. And yet there it is, there's a dead mallard. And so they, all of them, each one singly, was fined 56 bucks. <laughs> by the way, this, this figure became legendary in our family. Because any time my mother went out and, like, she would buy a uh, 75-cent bottle of evening in Paris perfume, and the old man would flip his cork and say, What is this? You think I'm made out of money? What is this? There'd be a long, pregnant silence. And my mother would say, Yes, I re well remember that $56 duck, which went over like a lead duck in our house all the time. And the old man would slam the door and <laughs> he'd go stalking out. So it cost him 56 bucks for this duck. Well, naturally, you know, when they got home, there was a lot of yelling and hollering. And, oh, what an argument. I want to tell you, Larry, there was an argument in, in my family's house, and that was on a Saturday. That argument started about 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon and did not conclude till the following Arbor Day, which came, as you know, late in the spring, and this was in the fall. And by the way, for your information, these two guys did not allow Sherby or my old man or Gertz or Bruner to bring the duck back. They confiscated the duck which was the final kick in the you-know-what. But they all got the fine. And, uh, by the way, they were also all forced to buy a license, too. <laughs> they had to pay whatever it is to buy the duck license, which they never used again. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is the way life really works in real life. You know? And so I'm a kid, you know, and I'm getting all excited about hunting. The old man's got this shotgun now in the house, and he's got this leather jacket with the thing where the with the end of the jacket where they use it for the recoil up on the shoulder and all that. I'm very excited. I'm watching this thing. Well, I, I became very excited about hunting then. That was a big thing with me. You know, hunting was a big shtick, and I got all excited. It was a real thing. Now, hunting became real. I'm 16 years old. I know I was 16 specifically because I had to buy a hunting license. And in the state of Indiana, you do not have to buy a hunting license until you're 16. And that was a big moment. You know, I was now old enough to buy a license. And that makes you very efficient. You go out and you buy this license, a resident license. It costs $2 and a half. And you get a button. Uh, they issue a button out in Indiana that you put on your hunting cap. And they have this little corduroy hat. And I had been reading these magazines like a nut. But all totally abstract. It was a totally abstract outdoor nut. And I had been reading Hunting and Fishing magazine and Field and Scream. And I'd been reading uh, old magazines like Sports of Field. And uh, my specialty was really dreaming about fishing. I really went fishing in our family. I would always think about it. And hunting was something that guys did in stories. Now, there was a lot of hunting, though, around our area out there. They had a lot of rabbits. They had pheasants. They had quail. And uh, they had each other. That's one thing that hunters do a lot of. They wing each other in the bushes once in a while. And uh, that can be exciting. Do you know that up in Maine today, if you shoot a moose, you get five years? That's right. If you shoot a person by mistake in hunting, the average sentence is about 11 months. 
I'm telling you the truth. A friend of mine just came back from Maine. He said he was amazed that if you shoot a moose out of season, it's five years dead, you know, like a $1,000 fine or something. He says, but if you shoot a person and you're hunting up there, the average sentence is about 11 months. So, uh, you know, he was up there in the woods and he had this 3006 there. And he sees this guy going through the woods, and he's weighing up against, you know, he's thinking about this. Let's see if you shoot a person out of season. And uh, he wanted to shoot something. You know, he, was all the way, he came all the way up there. hadn't seen anything but a couple of rocks, you know, and some beer cans. And, and uh, he wanted to shoot something. I will not tell you how it came out, except to say that he's got to go back up. His hearing is next month. But uh, nevertheless, I'm a kid, see. And uh, I knew a lot of other kids. And uh, some of them went hunting, and some of them didn't. Uh, others played football at that time of the year, and that's what I did. And hunting was a very abstract thing to me. Well, let me tell you about the time I went hunting snipes, and I'm 16 years old. I shall never, ever forget it. In fact, I never forgave the guy who was responsible for this. There was a guy in the neighborhood you never heard me talk about named George Beegee. Now, the reason I don't talk about Beegee, he and his buddy, Delbert Bumpus. Now, you're going to think I made that name up, but Delbert Bumpus was, was Beegee's buddy. And they were big, see, and they hung around with Lawrence Stryker, who was, these were the big kids. See, they were, you know, I was about 15, 16. These guys were like 18 and 19. They were really on top of the scene and really hip-type kids. And I'm always hanging around trying to make the scene with these guys. And one day, George Beegee says to me, he says, Chef, you're talking about hunting. He said, hey, Corky. That was Stryker's name. He says, hey, Cork, how about we take Chef snipe hunting? I said, yeah. Gee whiz, I'd love to hunt snipe. That'd be great. He said, well, have you ever seen a snipe? I said, no, but yeah, sure. I read about him in a book. I read about snipe. They go snipe hunting. Don't they go snipe hunting in Virginia? Places like that? There's some kind of a bird with a long beak. He says, no, no. These are Indiana swamp snipes. And I said, Indiana swamp snipes? He says, yeah. He says, and I'll tell you how you hunt for them. He says, I'll tell you what you do. He says, you want to go tomorrow night? And it's Saturday night. I says, yeah, yeah. He says, the only time you catch a snipe is at night. Right, Corky? Corky yeah, that's right. How about you, Dell? Right, you want to go out hunting snacks with Shep? Yeah. Okay, you got the scene? Saturday night, I am dressed in my canvas coat, my sheepskin, you know, with the big collar. I've got my corduroy hat. I'm wearing my overshoes. I got on my high knickers with the high things that lace up. We're going hunting. And we go out into the swamp in Delbert's Model A. We drive way out in the swamp. And we had a swamp that was like 500 miles long. And we drive deep into the swamp. And now we're out in the darkness. And BG is talking in whispers. He says, you can't talk out loud. The snipe will hear you. And if they hear you, they'll forget it. They're very shy. Now look, we're going to drop you off here. And me and Corky... And Dell are going into the woods, deeper in the woods, and we will chase the snipe toward you. Now you get in the water there, and you stand in the water and hold this burlap bag. You hold the bag between your legs, hold it open, see, like that. And the snipe will see the bag and think that it's a burrow. You know what a burrow is? It's a hole in the ground, see? You'll see that. You'll run into the bag. Now, you got the whistle. You, you have to keep whistling. Now, the snipe hears the whistling, see, and thinks that there's another snipe. Now, for some reason or other, and I don't know why it is, but snipe like to hear you whistle Dixie. Do you know how to whistle Dixie? I say, yeah. They say, okay, as soon as we go, you start whistling Dixie, and you keep the bag between the knees, and the snipe will come running in. Okay, good luck. Here's the bag. When I climb out of the car and I got the bag, it's a burlap sack, and I go down into the water, which is like 500 degrees below zero, and it is cold. Oh, boy, is it cold. The wind is blowing out of the trees. It is as dark as the inside of your hat. And I start going...
and they go off into the darkness and they're gone. And I am suddenly aware all around me is the swamp. I'm scared. There's nothing but darkness. What's that over there by the tree? Well, I was scared out of my skull. And I am really scared. And I am still excited. I'm hunting snipe. And I got that bag between my knees and I'm whistling Dixie. Well, I whistled Dixie for five hours up to my knees in the swamps. And dawn is coming up like thunder over the gas works far away. When it suddenly dawned on me, I have been T-A-K-E-N. I have been taken. And ever since that day, now, I'm going to, I, I, this is why I never have told this story before, because it's so embarrassing. Ever since that day, whenever I go back home, guys holler out of pool rooms, Hey, chef, how about going out for some snipe? There goes the snipe hunter. I never, ever lived that down. And I became known in certain circles as a, I can't even say it now. Can't say it now. I will not say it. But I will never forget hunting snipe. And as far as I'm concerned, those Jersey hunters out there in the darkness banging away at the only three ducks that were seen all that day, those guys plunging up in the main woods shooting at each other, and me standing knee-deep in the swamp whistling Dixie, we're all in the same bag. In the same bag. By the way, Finn, how would you like to do a little snipe hunting? I know where there's some snipe out there back of Hackensack. Out there by the junkyard. You like to go out tonight? Snipe on This is WOR in New York, friends. All right, sing it out, baby. Sing it out. Let's hear it. Come on, sing it, baby. Yes, friends. All in favor of having a party, holler. Hey, Miller High Life. Miller High Life beer is the life of the party, Dad. In ice-cold bottles and in cans, Miller spells instant fun, instant hospitality, and instant conviviality. So when you plan the party, plan to serve popular Miller High Life, the life of the party, the champagne of bottled beer, with the quality that reflects, of course, your magnificent good taste, because you're a person with such great taste. You're a person who really knows what's happening, man. And if you serve Miller High Life, that shows that you're one of the real people. So buy the right one, man. Miller High Life. That was the Gene Shepard Show on War November 29, 1967, entitled, The Hunting Story. Sitting Ducks. The Elgin Holiday Special started in 1942 on the Armed Forces Radio Service as a way to bring a little bit of home to the men and women serving their country in the armed services. Airing during Thanksgiving, U.S., and Christmas, the show was hosted by movie star Donna Michi. Among some of the performing stars are Gary Moore, Jimmy Durante, Candy Condito, Larry Stork, Vera Vague, Jack Benny, Red Skelton as both Junior the Mean Whittle Kid, and Clem Cadettlehopper, Artie Auerbach as Mr. Kitzel, and others. This is the sixth annual Elgin Thanksgiving special as broadcasted on November 26, 1947. Hint Hunt, presented by the makers of Chiffon Flakes and Armor Canned Meats, and Lum and Abner, presented by the makers of Alka-Seltzer, 
usually broadcast on Thursday afternoon over many of these stations, will not be heard today due to the special broadcast which follows immediately. makers of fine American watches for over 80 years presents its sixth annual Thanksgiving Day greeting to America. Two hours of star-studded entertainment broadcast throughout the United States to our veterans' hospitals and to our armed forces overseas so that those loved ones of yours in the service may celebrate with us and shortwave around the world. In the next two hours, in the order of their appearance, Elgin brings you Don Amici, Alan Jones, Jimmy Durante, and Gary Moore. Mary Jane Smith, Sir Lancelot, Larry Starch, Margaret Whiting, Vera Vague, the Paige Cavanaugh Trio, Bob Sweeney and Hal March, the Doctors of Harmony, Hootie Menuhin, Jack Benny, Mr. Kitzel, Red Skelton, and the Elgin Orchestra and Chorus under the direction of Louis Silvers. And here is your host for the full two hours, Don Amici. As a time-honored greeting for this day, ladies and gentlemen, it's Happy Thanksgiving. And all the stars Ken Carpenter just mentioned join me and the Elgin Watch Company and the Elgin Jewelers in wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. Many of them are old friends of yours, others are newcomers, stars of tomorrow. All join together to bring the warmth of their personalities and good wishes into your homes this Thanksgiving day. For Thanksgiving, perhaps more than any other day we celebrate, is the holiday of home. A simple day without tinsel or fireworks recalling the little things long remembered when the thoughts of those separated by the miles turn back to their beginnings, to friends and family, to home. In the spirit of Thanksgiving at home, Alan Jones sings, It's a Grand Night for Singing. It's a grand night for singing The moon is flying high and somewhere a bird who is bound, he'll be heard. He's throwing his heart at the sky. It's a grand night for singing. The stars are bright above. The earth is aglow, and to add to the show, I think I am falling in love. Falling, falling in love. Maybe it's more than the moon. Maybe it's more than the sight of the night In a night too lovely for words Maybe it's more than the earth Shiny and silvery Maybe the reason I'm feeling this way Has something to do with you It's a grand
Wonderful, Alan, just wonderful. It is a grand night for singing, and we'll be looking forward to you providing more of it later. Wherever you find song, you'll find laughter. And Elgin's Two Hours of Stars wouldn't be complete without the laughter generated in millions of American homes by two gentlemen known as the nose and the haircut. Reunited for the first time since they acquired shows of their own, Elgin is particularly proud to be able to bring Jimmy and Junior back together again this Thanksgiving. Here's the younger half of the partnership, a young man who often pays a buck for a haircut, but seldom gets clipped for the $64. Gary Moore! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Amachi. And good afternoon. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Awfully nice to be with you on this happy Thanksgiving. In fact, as the lightning bug said when he caught his tail in the pencil sharpener, I am delighted no end. <laughs> Don, you wait right here. I'll go back and come in again. Huh? Gary, you're always welcome on the Elgin program. We're just so happy to see you. Well, I'm happy too, Don. In fact, as the lightning bug said when he caught his tail in the pencil sharpener, I'm delighted no end. <laughs> Would you care to go around once more? Thank you, no. Tell me, Gary, what is that unpredictable mind of yours cooked up for this year's program? Well, Don, I thought maybe this year the people would like something sort of educational, you know, like, like, uh, well, like maybe a lecture or something. A lecture, mm -hmm. huh? Like on what subject? Well, like maybe a special lecture for single ladies visiting our town for the first time entitled, What to do when accosted on the street by a strange man and what streets to walk down to make sure you'll be. <laughs> You think, uh, you think something like that might be useful, Don? Well, uh, uh, yes, in a limited sort of way. Mm -hmm. But uh, how about something with more appeal for the masses? For the masses? Oh, for us, I've got the very thing. Movie gossip. Oh, you like movies. Oh, and dude, I do. Don, I am, I am especially crazy about those pictures with one-word titles, like shock, lured, pursued, possessed. And next year, David O. Selznick is going to present the greatest of them all. What's it called? Pooped. <laughs> I don't know, it, it should be just ginger peachy. Meanwhile, stand aside, Don, as I present the latest and intimate news scoops gathered from all over Hollywood. Here's a scoop. I was talking yesterday to Rodney Blupford, the actor. He tells me his next picture will be a remake of the old hit, He Who Gets Slapped. Rodney will play the title role, He Who. <laughs> Obviously a Chinese character. Exclusive Stupendous Pictures has just announced plans for their latest epic. It'll cost $5 billion with 5,000 stars, 3,000 extras, 500 producers, and 200 directors. The picture will be called... Just Plain Bill. <laughs> Attention! I was talking to Orson Welles yesterday as he sneaked down Hollywood Boulevard trying not to attract any attention. He was riding a flamingo side saddle. <laughs> <laughs> and Orson tells me that he is going into the perfume business as a sideline. It seems that while on location in South America, he picked up several undiscovered rare odors. He has mixed them all together and is calling this passionate mixture... Glendale! <laughs> Sounds just fine. This, this perfume, friends, will come in three styles for three different types of girls. The first one is for very smart, sophisticated girls. It's called... Yes. The, uh, the second perfume is for the more indefinite type. It's called Maybe. And the third type is for very dumb girls. It's called... Huh? 
luck, Austin. And here for my final scoop is the hottest news ever to come out of Hollywood. New York and Florida papers, please stand by. The news, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Ping pong, spelled backwards, is pronounced gnip gnip. <laughs> Thank you. Gary, I don't know what I wouldn't give to hear that all over again. Oh, thank you, Don. I wouldn't give anything either. <laughs> Besides, I haven't the time, old man. I'm, I'm expecting a phone call. A phone call? Oh, from an old sweetheart? Don, you couldn't have phrased it more neatly. Hello, Elgin program. Gary Moore speaking. Hello, Junior. This is Jimmy. Jimmy Durante, we're on the air. Why aren't you here? I'm having such a good time, I forgot, Junior. I'm at a big New Year's Eve party. Jimmy, New Year's Eve isn't for a month and a half. What are you doing there? Johnny Myers is picking up the checks so we wanted to get started early. <laughs> well, slip into something loose and come down here right away. And surely enough, here he comes now, the little man with the big nose and the heart to match, the one and only Jimmy Durante in person. Stay with a song Now even when things go wrong You feel better You even look better Stop the music Stop the music Okay, you asked for it No matter what you do to Evelyn You just can't stop that magic violin Ah, <laughs> oh, Seeing you across a mic again Is like two weeks in the country You're, you're my buddy boy Likewise, Junior, you're my fudge cake. And you're my doll buggy. And you're my dream boot. In fact, you're the finest, dearest, truest friend a fella ever had. If you listen in Russia, see how easy it is? <laughs> well, I, I don't want to appear maudlin, James, but I'm so overwhelmed to be working with you again that, well, Jim, I'm, I'm going to kiss you on both cheeks. I didn't know it was this serious. Here's my fraternity pin. <laughs> That's how I, that's the way I feel, like kissing you on both cheeks. Here now. <clears throat> First I kiss your left cheek. Now, the right cheek. You should have remembered, Junior, it's quite a trip around my nose. <laughs> <laughs> the super chief said it's a must if you're traveling the scenic route. <laughs> well, the trip was worth it, James. I feel happier. Now I do. Me too. In fact, Garrison, my heart is traveling with congenial junk annuity and palpitations of conciliatory tranquility. That solitates my being with consignurate begulment of our spurious hug in annuity. Jimmy! Oh, Jim, how can you say a thing like that? I just opened my mouth and hoped for the best. Well, I'm glad to see you the same old schnozzle. Tell me, James, what's, what's new with you since we've been separated? Junior, things have been going from bad to bedlam. No? For one thing, the new fashions the women are wearing leave me in a continual state of non mental. You mean the, the fashions are bothering you, James? Incessantly. Why, just the other day I followed somebody down the street who was wearing one of these new outfits with padded hips and the extra broad shoulders. What happened? Congratulate me, Junior. I'm now engaged to a quarterback from USC. <laughs> What you mean? No, those new long skirts are pretty terrible. You can say that again. Nowadays, every time I go into a restaurant, I order chicken. Just so I can look at legs again. <laughs> That's life, I guess. But say, Jim, I, I have a note on my cuff here to apologize to you. I'm, I'm sorry I was too busy to get to your party last night. I'm sorry, too, Junior. The drink was a muck with, a, with exuberant. <laughs> what? 
Good, I could have went a little further without missing. <laughs> Why, every big star in radio business was there. Bob Hope, Red Skelton, Joan Davis, Bing Crosby, Whirling Joe Pepperpoo. Whirling Joe Pepperpoo? What does he do that's so important in radio? When Porsche gets tired of facing life, he turns her around. <laughs> ah, Durani, don't bother looking back. Nobody can follow you. <laughs> Sounds like quite a party, Jim. Tell me, did you, um, did you invite any of the gang from your latest picture this time for keeps? Of a certainty, Junior. Esther Williams was there, and what a hunk of feminine pulcher, too. Yeah? And besides from being beautiful, she's doing all right financially, too. <laughs> yeah, Jim, but money doesn't really mean much to Esther. You know, just the other day, I heard her say, you can't take it with you. Yeah, but with what she's got, I'd sure like to help her carry it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, your, your party was an unqualified success then, huh? Yes, Junior, except for one thing. Huh? You see, next door to me, Atwater Kent was throwing a party, too. Mm -hmm. But Henry Wallace kept coming in and stealing guests from Atwater's party. Then he'd come in and steal guests from my party. Henry Wallace was stealing guests? Yes, he'd do anything to start a third party. <laughs> Now, there's a joke that is fraught with no significance. <laughs> I agree, Pete, totally. Besides, James, it's time for us to get to work. What, are you, um, uh, what do you want to do for the people this year? With me, it's immaterial. Maybe they'd like a little music. Well, maybe. I'll, I'll ask somebody in the band. Say, um, uh, you there with the oboe, you've heard us play and sing before. How do you feel about us doing a musical number? I'm feeling mighty low. <laughs> that guy's tonsil should wear elevator shoes. <laughs> I'll ignore his shabby attitude. Mr. Silver's a fanfare, if you please. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall now sing a song at the piano, accompanied quietly by Gary Moore at the drum. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Mr. Moore, you have an eight-bar rest. Would you like to try for 16? <laughs> I'm sorry, Jim. We'll start from the Pasta Fazul, Mr. Moore. All right. Soft. Soft. Say, I know a fellow. A fellow. A fellow who can make your life so mellow. Ah, so mellow. May I ask what that was, Mr. Moore? Well, frankly, Jim, I was trying to drown out the sound of that piano. You know, it sounds kind of peculiar. It does have a peculiar tone. I better raise the lid and look inside. <laughs> Sorry, Princess Elizabeth, I didn't mean to disturb your hideaway. <laughs> we'll begin again, Mr. Moore. Here you go. There's one like him in every town. He's half a man and half a clown. They call him Briago. Could be mayor of New York or of Chicago. Umbriaco. Razors came from Portland, Maine to San Diego. Junior, Junior. Yes, you're not to interrupt me when I'm getting sent. <laughs> I hate to say this, Jim, but you are not only getting sent, you are giving off one. <laughs> Mr. Moore, remember the old Chinese saying? He who ridiculous Durante winds up with fat lip. 
Mr. Silvers, pick it up at the bridge. I'll pay the toll later. When you worry, better send for hombre. I'll go in a hurry. He got lots of time. That's all he spends his time. He never spends a dime. So telegram for Mr. Durani. Telegram. I'll take it, boy. Right over here. What? Why, Jim? It's from the management of the Hollywood Bowl. Well, the Hollywood Bowl. They must want me to make an offer. Say, what does it say? That's what it says on the No, it doesn't either. <laughs> You're reading the part in Morse code. Let's take it again. Uh, the Hollywood Bowl. And please, please do not correct me in public. <laughs> Jim, the telegram is from the management of the Hollywood Bowl. Hollywood Bowl? They must want to make me an offer. I phrased it for myself. <laughs> what does it say? After the next concert they have, they want you to wash the ring from around the bowl. <laughs> I've been stabbed. Why, just last month, I played a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. I played with such terrifying force that the clouds began to gather around my head. And when I reached the climax, the clouds opened up and the hail came down. The hail, you say? What's your language? <laughs> You know, you can be transcribed for a more inconvenient time. <laughs> Continue, Mr. Silvers. So, when you feel low, better send for my friend Umbriac. Let me hear that band. Umbriac could be mayor of New York or of Chicago. Umbriac raises came from Portland, Maine to San Diego. You know, Tchaikovsky just finished his fifth. <laughs> I can admit it. Admit it. <laughs> when you're worried, better send for Umbriago in a hurry. Say he's got lots of time. That's all he spends his time. He never spends a time. I beg, I beg of you, Junior. Believe me, Jim, there is nothing I can do that's going to hurt this tune. Just a minute, you two. There's a man here with a message from the sponsor, Mr. Elgin. A message from the sponsor? Well, what is it? Like a Santa friend with a soda feet and a rima song. Ask your ball water and a manly strander with a finest If that's the way he feels, okay. Junior, what was the message? That was Mumbles. We've just been replaced by his quartet. <laughs> Let's go home, Mr. Doretti. Let's go, Mr. Moore. So, when you feel low, better send for my friend Umbriaco. Oh, that was great, Jimmy Durante and Gary Moore. Say, Ken, do you hear that? Don't tell me it's raining. Oh, Don, you know it couldn't be raining here in California. Our sound effects man is merely helping me illustrate for our listeners the little-known fact that it can rain inside your watch. Yes, in spite of all possible protection, it can rain inside your watch, for there's air in your watch. When, like the air outside, it's humid, and then there comes a sudden drop in temperature, 
a droplet of moisture can form inside the watch case, a miniature rainstorm. The result, sometimes very quickly, sometimes later, ping goes the mainspring, weakened by rust. But now Elgin watches have a miracle mainspring that will not rust. Not only rust-proof, the Europower mainspring holds its springiness indefinitely for greater accuracy through the years. Elgin's new Durapower mainspring actually eliminates 99% of watch repairs due to steel mainspring failures. Only Elgin watches have Durapower mainsprings, and at no extra cost to you. Elgin, with its beauty and style leadership. Elgin, with its time-to-the-stars accuracy. And now, Elgin's exclusive Durapower mainspring. You can be sure the loved one you surprise with a watch this Christmas will be so much happier with an Elgin. Look for the symbol DP on the dial, the symbol of Durapower Mainspring. But uh, shop early for your gift Elgins. They're America's most wanted watches, and the demand far exceeds the supply. Samuel Butler once wrote that youth, like spring, is an overpraised season. But if the success of child stars on the screen is any criterion, the record seems to prove the contrary. We think one of Elgin's brightest new stars someday might fill the shoes of Deanna Durbin and Catherine Grayson. Just a little over five foot three, topped with golden brown hair, charming 15-year-old Mary Jane Smith. Mary Jane, ever since I heard you sing the part of Snow White on the air with Charlie McCarthy, you've been one of my favorite youngsters. Thank you, Mr. Amici. You've always been one of my favorites, too. Uh, among the older actors. The older actors? Mary Jane, I've made love to Myrna Loy, Loretta Young, Joan Bennett, and Jean Tierney. Gee, no wonder you're always smiling. Well, from what I've heard from MGM about your singing, Mary Jane, you have plenty of reason to be smiling yourself these days. Tell me, has singing on the screen always been your big ambition? No, someday I hope to sing at the Metropolitan. I've already memorized the scores of seven operas. Oh, that's quite an achievement. I can't even remember the ball game scores. <laughs> well, if you've forgotten the score of the World Series, it was four games to three. Four games to three? Uh, how'd you happen to know that? I'm from Brooklyn. We were robbed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks to me like Brooklyn finally has a winner. Uh, tell me, have you made any pictures yet, Mary Jane? No, I'm still taking vocal lessons and going to school on the lot. Every day, I eat lunch with Dean Stockwell, Claude Jarman Jr., Elizabeth Taylor, or Margaret O'Brien. Why don't you join me someday? Oh, I'd love to. Let me know when you're eating with Lana Turner. <laughs> in the meantime, Mary Jane, I'd like to invite all our listeners to join me in listening to you sing the beautiful Oluchi di Quest Anima, or Light Divine That Shines from Love, from the opera Linda di Chamouni. Elgin is proud to present the talented young coloratura discovery, Mary Jane Smith. Un 
Jane, just beautiful. The music of America is as varied as its people. Embracing the top tunes of Tin Pan Alley, the operas and symphonies of the Metropolitan, and folk music ranging all the way from Negro spirituals to the hillbilly music of the mountains. One of our most recent arrivals is Calypso music. And with us today on Elgin's Two Hours of Stars is the man who introduced and popularized it in this country, Sir Lancelot. Just how would you describe Calypso music, Sir Lancelot? Well, when you set to music some news or a speech, you get Calypso, Mr. Amige. You make up a verse the best way you're able, and always put the accent on the wrong syllable. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's very interesting, Sir Lancelot. <laughs> Are there any items in the news you could put the wrong syllable on right now? Oh, yes. Uh, for example... Uh, with the new telescope at Palomar, they can see much more of every star. So the men up there, as soon as they're able, will probably peek at Betty Grable. <laughs> and that's the Calypso version of an important item in the news, huh? <laughs> yes, Mr. Michi, but here's the most important news of all. If you are looking for a gift that will forever endure An Elgin watch is perfect, you may rest assured For in watchmaking circles, the talk of the hour Is Elgin Miracle Mainspring Dura Power The finest steel mainspring ever made will rust But in Elgin's Dura Power you can place your trust A brand new secret alloy development Eliminates mainspring failures 99% Yes, it's greatest watch improvement in 200 years Makes an Elgin watch for Christmas a gift that endears Their beauty and accuracy will make you exclaim It's the loveliest watch to bear the proud Elgin name 
So for a famous Elgin watch, time to the stars. Just see your friendly jeweler for particulars. Whether it's Lord or Lady Elgin, you will say, an Elgin is a joy to give on Christmas Day. Thank you, Sir Lancelot. It was just two Thanksgivings ago that a 21-year-old sailor returned from active duty in the South Pacific and made his debut as an unknown entertainer here on the Elgin program. Since then, his remarkable talent for mimicry has won him a star in his dressing rooms at nightclubs throughout the nation. He's back with us this Thanksgiving, this time a star himself, Larry Storch. Keeping track of Larry today would be quite a task, for he's equally adept at impersonating James Cagney, Winston Churchill, Peter Lorre... Please, Mr. Michi, don't even mention the name of Peter Lorre. In school, they used to say while the other children were erasing the blackboard, I was erasing the teacher. <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm treacherous, cold-blooded killer. Peter Laurie, a killer? Oh, that's nonsense. Of course you're not a killer. Why, well, I'd be proud to have you as a friend. Here, let's shake on that. Mm, that's wonderful, Mr. Michi. Just a moment till I wipe the blood off my hands. The blood off your hands? Well, then it's true. You are a killer. Yes, yes. But Humphrey Bogart here forced me to do it. Humphrey Bogart? Yeah, Humphrey Bogart, Michi. <laughs> we had a pretty tough customer. First, we bumped him off. And we tied a rope around his neck and hung him. And we took an axe and cut his head off. Well, how could you do such a thing? You know a better way to kill a turkey? Kill a turkey? Oh, I thought you were talking about killing a man. What? For Thanksgiving? We tried that once, but it didn't work out. It didn't work out? Yes. No drumsticks. <clears throat> <laughs> well, goodbye, Michi. Oh, now, wait, wait just a minute, man. You're not leaving so soon. Uh, yeah, we got a date with some coppers down at the station house. They want to take a fast look at our identification papers. Well, will it take long? Oh, no, no. It's just a short pause for station identification. Um, yes, well, be sure to hurry back because the second half hour of Elgin's great two-hour Thanksgiving Day Parade of Stars will start right after station identification. Uh, if this guy's leveling, Laurie, we better stick around. How about it, Carpenter? Is this a gag? Why, no, this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is KNX in Los Angeles. The Elgin Watch Company's sixth annual two-hour Thanksgiving Day greeting to America, our armed forces overseas, and the men and women in our veterans' hospitals, and shortwave round the world continues with Don Amici, Margaret Whiting, Vera Vague, Jimmy Durante, the Page Cavanaugh Trio, Bob Sweeney and Hal March, the Doctors of Harmony, Larry Storch, Yehudi Menuhin, Jack Benny, Mr. Kitzel, Alan Jones, Mary Jane Smith, Red Skelton and the Elgin Orchestra and Chorus under the direction of Louis Silvers. Again, your host for the full two hours, Don Amici. To those of you who have just joined us, the very warmest of Thanksgiving greetings from the Elgin Watch Company, the Elgin Jewelers, and all the stars here to share this day of thanks with those of you celebrating Thanksgiving in your homes throughout the nation. 
Some of our stars were on hand that first Thanksgiving after Pearl Harbor, when Elgin's two hours of stars was a greeting to our boys and girls far away and lonesome overseas in the service. Last Thanksgiving, one of our newcomers was a young lady on her way to fame via the jukeboxes. Today, she's an established radio and recording star. Elgin congratulates and proudly presents Margaret Whiting. I love you, you do. No one means more to me than you do. You take December and smile it into May, and then December. Comes back again when you're away. Who has a charm that very few do? Who makes life necessary? You do. And who can take my dreams and make my dreams? Come true. Don't give me three guesses. One will do. Who has a charm that very few do? Necessary, you do. And who can take my dreams and make my dreams come true? Who? Don't give me three guesses. One will. That's smooth as silk, Margaret. I understand since you last joined us here on Elgin's Two Hours of Stars, you've gone and got yourself a radio show with Bob Crosby. That's right, Don. Bing has Barry Fitzgerald and Bob has me. Bob introduced you to Bing yet, Maggie? Oh, yes, we met just a few days ago. I was helping Bob pick out a set of trains for his kids when we ran into Bing. Bing was buying a train, too. Oh, really? Which one did uh, Bing buy? Well, I think it was the Union Pacific. <laughs> Sometime you want to watch him pick a Thanksgiving turkey out at Santa Anita. Out at Santa Anita? Yeah, he makes the butcher race his eight best birds around the track before he picks the winner. <laughs> well, I hope that's not your system, Don. No, I'm the old-fashioned type, Maggie. We get our bird right from Rice's farm. You know, one of those overstuffed old turkeys that runs around all aflutter and excited, tail feathers sticking out and gobbling. Oh, Mr. Mitchell, you... Vera <laughs> Mitchie 
what a thrill spending another Thanksgiving with you, you American Mountbatten with a mustache. <laughs> oh, one look at you and I know I have plenty to be thankful for. Yeah, I can see you're making the most of every moment while Bob Hope is away. Oh, yeah, well, you know the old saying, when the cat's away, the mouse will play. And you think of yourself as being a little mouse. Oh, uh, well, I must be. Every man I meet tells me to keep my trap shut. <laughs> Uh, but, but don't mention Mr. Hope, Mr. Amici. All he ever thinks of anymore is teeth. Everyone on his program was so embarrassed when he heard that made that terrible faux pas at Princess Elizabeth's wedding, my goodness. Really? What did he do? Oh, when he heard Elizabeth wore a crown, he tried to get her to brush it with Pepsida. <laughs> oh, by the way, Miss Vague, you must remember Margaret Whiting. Oh, must I? Oh, oh, yes, of course I must. Yes, how are you, dear? Gee, it's nice seeing you again here uh, on this Thanksgiving, Miss Fague. Oh, uh, well, yes, isn't it a glorious day, dear? It brings back so many memories. I'll never forget the first time I sat down at the table with the grown folks for my first Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, it must have been wonderful eating with the pilgrims. <laughs> Bless your little heart. <laughs> For two pins, I'd put you back in your jukebox and nail the lid on. Oh, now, please, please, Miss Vague. Miss Whiting is much more than a singer on jukeboxes. She has her own radio program for a soup company. Well, they certainly didn't use their noodle. <laughs> uh, you know, of course, Miss Whiting, that your sponsors asked me to pose for their soup ads. Yes, I heard about that. Miss Mock Turtle of 1947. <laughs> but of course, I probably would have done it if I'd had beautiful blonde hair like Miss Whiting. <laughs> yes, her hair is beautiful, isn't it, Miss Bay? Oh, yes, it's beautiful. Tell me, dear, where did you ever get shredded wheat that length? Now, Miss Vague, aren't you forgetting today is Thanksgiving? Oh, 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 you're right, Mr. Amici. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Miss Whiting. After all, we girls have to stick together if we expect ever to take over this man's world, don't we? Women are taking over? Oh, certainly, Mr. Amici. Today, women are doing everything that men can do. Today, we even have women bus drivers. Well, hooray for women bus drivers. Today, we have women lawyers. Hooray for women lawyers. Today we have women doctors. Hooray for women doctors. In fact, today there's very little difference between men and women. Hooray for the little difference. <laughs> John, I don't think you're taking Miss Vague seriously, and she's right. Well, of course, Mr. Me, of course I'm right. Uh, now, don't you be surprised, Mr. Amici, if we even have a woman president one of these days. I'm seriously thinking of running for the office myself. You mean you, mean you want to run the country? You want to rule the roost? Well, certainly, if it's got the right kind of rooster. <laughs> I suppose as a candidate, you have a broad platform. Well, let's not get... Oh, oh, yes, a broad platform. <laughs> Yes, you know, like two chickens in every pot, two cars in every garage. Oh, I've got a much better platform than that. Two Gregory Pecks on every sofa. <laughs> oh, I can just picture the day of election. Here's your latest news on the election returns. Republicans admit defeat. Agree that from now on, Dewey will only be a weather report. Latest report from Washington, Democrats admit defeat. Truman fails to sweep country. Vague cleans up. 
Ladies and gentlemen, attention. Ms. Vera Vague is our new president. The ship of state now has a woman driver at the wheel. All ships head for the nearest harbor. And now we take you directly to the White House for an interview with the new president. Madam President, I'm Carpenter from CBS. How does it feel to wear the pants of the United States? Uh, well, confidentially, they're a little tight around the deep south. <laughs> well, Madam President, you must have dabbled in politics for years. Oh, yes, indeed. As a little girl, I collected Hoover buttons. I still have them. Oh, <laughs> they must be very close to you. Oh, they certainly are. They hold up my bloomers. <laughs> oh, shame. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Carpenter. Excuse me, please. Uh, come in. Oh, it's you. You've finally come. Well, what is your answer? No! No, 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 and no! You won't reconsider? No! Who was that? Mrs. Vashinsky. <laughs> I must remember to get a new hanky. My bugle was a little out of tune. Why, it's James Durante, my secretary of the treasury and guardian of the exchequer. Where have you been? I've been getting dressed for our meeting. Don't I look like I just stepped out of Bond Street? You look more like you stub your toe in Nightmare Alley. <laughs> Please, if I had starch in my sweatshirt, I'd be this month's man of distinction. About <laughs> time you arrived, young man. I've had a terrible day trying to get the Supreme Court to get that new look. They refused to lower the hems on their black gowns. Too bad. Too bad. I noticed last week that one of the justice gowns was so short, his ipso facto was showing. <laughs> Uh, tell me, tell me, Mr. Rennie, uh, how is everything going at Fort Knox, please? Ghastly, ghastly. I had to spend a whole day cleaning. For the past 20 years, the Democrats have been sweeping all the duck, gold dust under the rugs. Oh, oh, be careful you don't lose any of it. There's more gold at Fort Knox than any place in this world. I can see you haven't been to General Meyer's house lately. <laughs> but, I'm afraid I, but I'm afraid I'm digressing. I'm here, I'm here with my annual report due to the end of the official year. Yes. According to my figures, the assets of the fictional fiduciary after the pretense of never renomination uh, of, yeah. of the collateral subsidiaries, uh, they subtracted from balances accrued through interstate uh, revenues is... Uh, uh, darling, uh, uh, I just had to rush in and tell you the good news. Oh, it's my Secretary of the Interior, Margaret Whiting. What's the good news, dear? Well, Madam President, I finally figured out what to do with the White House. I'm changing it to Fuchsia. Oh, wonderful, dear, wonderful. White always brings out my bag. <laughs> <laughs> the assets of the official fiduciary of the uh, partial depository. Uh, uh, you can't say I'm not trying. <laughs> Indicates the monetary collateral provided at Bretton Woods. Uh, I'm a little in the woods myself here. When total against allowances occurred in lieu of liabilities... And another uh, thing, darling, is provided in the vague plan I'm sending hair curlers to Africa, lipsticks to the Eskimo, and face powder to Saladonia. Uh, Saladonia, where's that? Well, it's a very small country. The people don't smoke, drink, or neck. Uh, no wonder it's such a small country. <laughs> uh, uh, One more interruption uh, from you dames and I'll filibuster. Oh, go fill your buster somewhere else. <laughs> We're discussing important things now. It, it's humiliating, but I warned the country. Put a dame in the White House and what have you got? A gushing, a gassing, and a gabbing. No time for anything but blabbing. You have this wonderful country right up the creek. You do nothing but gossip all day. Hooey, plain old hooey. We're as good as Taft or Dewey. We will lower taxes soon as we get back from Saxes. Picking up a bargain. Gatchin, a gappin, and a gassin. We need an Heiser or a Stassin. 
a Senate investigation, and then we, we can, can start, start in on Captain again. Ah, oh, that is great. Vera Vague, Jimmy Durante, and Margaret Whiting will probably never go into business as a trio, but if they did, here's the group they could take a few tips from. It's the Page-Cavanaugh Trio. The Page-Cavanaugh combination is not made up of three guys named Page, Cav, and Naw. Page Piano Cavanaugh is the leader of the group, which includes Al Viola on the guitar and Lloyd Pratt on the bass. They got together in the Army, bounced their way into popularity with the Bobby Sockers on radio and recordings, and will soon be seen featured prominently in three forthcoming films. Here they are, the Page Cavanaugh Trio and Okel Baby Dokel. Now translated into English, this means Okel Baby Dokel. Okel Baby Dokel, like a like a baby you, if you're local Baby Dokel, like me. Okel Baby Dokel, like a like a huggle you, if you're local Baby Dokel, huggle me. Okel Baby Dokel, like a like a kissle you, if you're local Baby Dokel, kissle me. Local baby doke, like a like a tender you. If your local baby doke, tenderly. If your love words won't come out when you've got a lot to say, just talk to the one you're mad about in the local baby doke way. Say, local baby doke, like a like a love you. If your local baby doke, love me. Local baby doke, like a like a marry you. If your local baby doke, marry me. Charming in the charmingest way, the charmingest way. But when we're cheek to cheek and my speaking starts to weaken, this is what my heart begins to say. Oka baby doka, like a like a baby you, if you're local baby doka, like me. Oka baby doka, like a like a huggle you, if you're local baby doka, huggle me. Oka baby doka, like a like a kissle you, if you're local baby doka, kissle me. Local baby doka, like a like tender you. If your local baby doka, tenderly. If your love words won't come out when you've got a lot to say, just talk to the one you're mad about in the local baby doka way. Say, local baby doka, like a like love you. If your local baby doka, love me. Local baby doka, like a like marry you. If your local baby doka, marry me. Baby, don't marry me. Ah, that's wonderful, man. Paige, I don't think you learned to play that way in the Vienna Institute of Music. No, uh, Don, as a matter of fact, I went to Kansas State Teachers College. Flunked everything but advanced calculus. Well, how'd you avoid flunking advanced calculus? I didn't take it. Well, you might have slipped as a student, but you've certainly chalked up enough successes since then. How about an encore? Well, Don, this being the Elgin program, I think we have just a thing. Well, then let's get to it. 
She had 29 Cadillacs, 29 sables and sacks. But there was something she missed with no Elgin on her wrist. The lady from 29 Palms. She had watches that couldn't compare, constantly under repair. Because the winders were busted, the mainsprings were rusted. Poor lady from 29 Palms. Then one day she heard about Elgin's Andorra Power mainspring design. Getting all rusting. She put in her order for 29. The lady was really no sap. She sold all her autos for scrap. And now her 29 fellas are holding on their arms to the lady with 29 palms. Now they've got time on their hands. It's an Elgin so grand. Don't need the lady from 29 palms. Fine, man, fine. We'll be latching on to some more of the Page Cavanaugh trio later. Most of the established radio favorites who jump through a hooper into your home each week are entertainers who've been at the top for 10 or 15 years. But there are many newcomers making their bid to gain a foothold on radio's ladder of success. Two such men are Bob Sweeney and Hal March. As soon as we heard the work of these two happy Rover boys, we felt instinctively they were the perfect type for an assignment on Elgin's Thanksgiving Day program. And here is what happened as they drove to the CBS studio on the way to the two hours of stars. Bob Sweeney and Hal March. Well, Bob, this is the big day, right? It sure is, Hal. How do you feel? A little nervous. Well, you shouldn't be, Bob. The, the trouble with you is you don't have any poise, any confidence. What is it that gives a man joie de vivre, savoir-faire, rubin bleu, parlez-vous? Oh, I don't know about you, but strawberries do it to me. <laughs> well, just relax, you'll be all right, Bob. Well, uh, what are we supposed to do in this Elgin show, Hal? Well, Bob, you know how in baseball, when the bases are loaded, they send in the cleanup man to win the old ball game? Yeah. Well, Don Amici told me that's us. Oh, that's swell. That's only fitting. Well, wait, here's the studio, Hal. Good, now keep your eye open for a parking place. Okay, Hal, let's see now. Oh, there's a place, Hal. Uh, oh, there. swell. Yeah. A little small, but I think I can squeeze in. Well, hold it, Hal. I'll get out and I'll direct you. Fine, go right. ahead, Bob. Right. Right. Okay, Hal. Now, now, cut your wheels in and come back. All right. Yeah. Back some more. Come on. Back, back. Back, back, back. Come on. Back, back, back. <laughs> Got about a foot. <laughs> Well, that's close enough. Yeah. <laughs> Got about a foot. Come on, let's get into the studio. Hey, uh, Hal, before we go into the studio, uh, would you like an oh-for-goodness-sake sandwich? No, thanks, Bob. I... What, what kind of a sandwich? Uh, an oh-for-goodness-sake sandwich. What kind of a sandwich is that? Well, it's two pieces of bread with a piece of bread in the middle. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> See, that's what everybody says. <laughs> Come on. Hey... hey. Uh, let's just cut through the lobby here, huh? All right. All right. I'll hold it, Bob. I want to check myself over before we go in. All right. Well, here's a glass door over here, Hal. Oh, fine. Let's see now. There'll probably be some movies. That... Oh. Oh, there you are, Marge. Oh, yes. I agree with you. You beautiful bronze Apollo, you. Let's see now. What kind of condition are you in? Nails properly buffed. Cuticles exquisitely trimmed except for the left index, which is undergoing special therapy treatments. 
hair neatly combed with the sixth and seventh waves cascading to the starboard. <laughs> teeth dazzling white. Hey, Al, how do you keep your teeth so white? It's just an effect, Bob. I have a dark mouth. <laughs> and the, uh, the tie, just the right amount showing below the collar. There. Oh, March, March. Heaven sent you down for me to love. Ooh! <laughs> and, uh, let me take a look at myself now. All right. Let's see now. Fingernails, all chewed off. <laughs> Hair, not much. Tooth, dazzling white. With just the right amount showing below the gums. All right, Bob, let's cut through the lobby here and get into the studio. All right, Al. Gosh, there certainly is a crowd in the lobby today, yeah. isn't there? Hey, you know, Hal, every time I walk through this lobby with you, uh, I just get so proud. Oh, come now, Bob. No, no, you? honest, Hal. I'm so lucky to have a partner as smart as you. It's really a privilege. No, Bob, really. No, and handsome, too. But, boy, you're about the handsomest man in Hollywood. Cut it out, Bob. Not the handsomest, no. <laughs> really, and the best actor, too. Handsome and smart and, and the best actor in the world. You're just wonderful. Get my hat, Bob. It flew right over there. <laughs> there you are, Hal. Thank you. Yeah. Well, kid, there's the studio. Now, when we get in there... Oh, just a second, Bob. What? Here come some friends of mine. Oh. Hiya, haircut. We're on the Elton Show today. Well, who is that, Hal? Gary Moore, the haircut, Bob. Oh. Hiya, voice. Bob and I are on the Elton Show today. Who, who's that, Hal? Frank Sinatra, the voice. Sinatra? Bob, great guy. Hiya, nose. Doing the big Thanksgiving show today. Who's that, Hal? Jimmy Durante, the nose, Bob. Oh. Hiya, Fanny. <laughs> Who is that, Bob? Fanny Bryce. She's a comedian. Oh. Come on into the studio, Bob. Okay. Oh, well, where is he? Where's Mr. Amici? There he is, Bob, right over there. Oh, Don. Don, boy. We're here. Oh, oh, you two finally got here. I was a little worried. Well, never mind, Don, boy. We're here. The old cleanup team. Who do we follow? Well, the next stars are the uh, Doctors of Harmony, and then there'll be Yehudi Menuhin, Jack Benny, and Red Skelton. Gotcha, Don, boy. Bob. Got him. Then as we go into the wind-up, I come on for my good night. You got it? Got you, Don. Bob. Got him. Then the announcer takes us off the network. Takes us off. Bob. Got him. Yeah. And everybody goes home to their Thanksgiving dinner. Then you come on. <laughs> but, but Don boy, what kind of a spot is that for the old cleanup team? Well, the best spot in the world. Nobody around the studio to bother you. I'll get you mops and brooms. <laughs> mops and brooms? Bob. Got him. Oh, no. <laughs> You don't have to go any farther than a picnic, party, or church social to find ample evidence that most Americans still get a kick out of raising their voices in song. Not long ago, the Society for the Preservation and Encouragement of Barbershop Quartet Singing in America was started in Oklahoma. Since then, it's snowballed into an international organization with 325 chapters in the United States and Canada. It was Elgin's privilege to honor the SPEBSQSA 
for preserving an American tradition by inviting the winners of their international competition to join us in celebrating this Thanksgiving. Complete with light suits and straw hats from Elkhart, Indiana, the world's best barbershop quartet, the Doctors of Harmony. Say, tell me, how did you boys happen to hit on the light suits and straw hats? We wear them for luck, Don. We were discovered singing at a summer picnic wearing these outfits. Well, it's a lucky thing you weren't discovered singing in the shower. <laughs> just one thing I don't get. Why do you call yourself a barbershop quartet? Goes back to the good old days, Don. The customers waiting for a barber got together and sang. Well, did they always sing in quartets? No, I sometimes understand it. Sometimes took a fifth to get them started. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I see what you mean. And out of this came today's society of barbershop quartets. Yes, only nowadays the object is to blend harmony and chords better than any other group. Sometimes we have as many as five harmonizing notes on one chord. And you always sing unaccompanied without uh, piano or orchestra? Yeah, I think that's why we've never gotten a Christmas card from Petrillo. Well, I think you get plenty of Christmas cards. After all, our friends listening in at home have heard your medley of old favorites. Elgin presents the Doctors of Harmony. I had a dream, dear. You had one, too. Mine was a Doctors of Harmony, that was grand. Oh, Don, Don Amici. Oh, Don, my boy. <laughs> there you are. Don, in keeping with the festive spirit of the day, I have stopped by to wish you a very happy Thanksgiving, or 
Have you forgotten me? <laughs> forgotten you? Why, Frank Morgan, I couldn't forget you any more than I could forget Larry Storch. Where are you headed, Frank? All the same place everybody else is headed this time of the year, Don. I'm rushing home to a Thanksgiving dinner, and I can hardly wait to get at the bird. Can hardly wait to get at that old turkey, huh? Can hardly wait to get at the old crow. <laughs> oh, now, Frank, you're not serious. You are having a turkey, aren't you? No, Don Zeno. Turkey is so expensive this year, we're having weasel. <laughs> weasel? Yes, I'm preparing it myself. It's quite an art. <laughs> you have to keep it very moist before you cook it. Well, so long, Don. Frank, Frank, where are you going? Uh, out to wet my weasel. <laughs> <laughs> Frank, can't you be serious for a moment? Do you think I joke with your jockey? <laughs> I'm, I'm basting it with orange juice. First I pour long ones over it, none of the pilgrims, then I pour short ones. What are the short pours for? Short pours for station identification. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Frank, in the second half of Elson's two-hour Thanksgiving Day greeting to the nation will continue right after we have a short pause for station identification. Can't you be serious for a moment? Do you think I joke with your jockey? <laughs> I'm, I'm basting it with orange juice. First I pour long ones over it, none of the pilgrims, then I pour short ones. What are the short pours for? Short pours for station identification. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Frank, in the second half of Elson's two-hour Thanksgiving Day greeting to the nation will continue right after we have a short pause for station identification. You're having one, too? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, get the oranges. <laughs> this is an unexpected pleasure. Oh, no, this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs> KNX in Los Angeles. The Elgin Watch Company's sixth annual two-hour Thanksgiving greeting to America, our servicemen, hospitalized veterans, and neighbors around the world, starts at second hour. In the next 60 minutes, you'll hear Don Amici, Yehudi Menuhin, Jack Benny, Mr. Kitzel, Alan Jones, Mary Jane Smith, Larry Storch, Margaret Whiting, Red Skelton, and the Elton Orchestra and Chorus under the direction of Louis Silvers. And here's your host for these two hours of stars, Don Amici. On behalf of all the stars gathered here in Hollywood today at the invitation of the Elgin Watch Company and the Elgin Jewelers, May I say it's a privilege and a pleasure to be sharing this Thanksgiving with so many millions of other Americans. For Elgin's Two Hours of Stars has become an anticipated part of America's Thanksgiving tradition. And each holiday season, Elgin has made a sincere effort to bring you its diversified listening audience on the farms and in the cities, something for everyone. Many years have passed since that memorable night when a little blonde-haired boy in knee pants came out on the stage of Carnegie Hall in New York tucked his three-quarter-sized violin under his chin and won his first ovation from the critics. During the war years, he entertained our armed forces in the States and overseas and gave the first public concert in liberated Paris at the personal request of General Charles de Gaulle. Elgin is proud to present the superb artistry of the world-famous violinist Yehudi Menuhin.
accompanied by his sister, Yalta Menuhin. Mr. Menuhin plays Habanera by Sarasate. That was magnificent, Yehudi Menuhin. It is truly a remarkable occasion when radio is privileged to present the brilliant genius of an artist such as Yehudi Menuhin. 
To bring two artists of such distinguished caliber and stature together on the same program is almost beyond the scope of the imagination. This Thanksgiving, the Elgin Watch Company has accomplished the impossible. Elgin is privileged to present a musician whose work has been the talk of the music world. His nimble fingers caressing his instrument with a technique that is unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, that great American violin virtuoso, Jack Benny. Thank you, thank you, Don Amici. What I wouldn't give for his teeth when I eat my turkey tonight. <laughs> you know, uh, Don, I'm in a terribly embarrassed position as it just so happens. Well, you may not believe this, but the number I had prepared for this evening was the same selection that Mr. Menuhin just played. <laughs> Really, I, I don't know what to do. Well, Jack, I, I'm awfully sorry about this situation. It just happened, that's all. Well, it seems to me you should have planned your program a little better. I mean, if you invited me, you certainly didn't need Mr. Menuhin. <laughs> I mean, by the same token, if you invited Kaiser, you wouldn't need Fraser. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. Well, Jack, there's nothing we can do about it now, and... Believe me, I, I didn't mean to embarrass you. Me? I'm not thinking of myself, Don. I'm thinking of Mr. Menuhin. <laughs> if I'd have come out first, he'd have been dead. <laughs> well, anyway, ladies and gentlemen, as long as I have to play on the program this evening, I'd like to point out that Mr. Menuhin's violin and mine are entirely different. You see, uh, Mr. Menuhin has a Stradivarius while mine happens to be an Eastern Columbarius Broadway and Ninth <laughs> You know, Don, I saved my money and bought this violin 40 years ago. 40 years ago? Well, Jack, I thought you were only 38. Don, I started saving money when I was a gleam in my father's eye. <laughs> Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I'm in a kind of a spot now. I hardly know what to do as my selection has been, shall I say, nipped by Mr. Menuhin. Now, let's see. Oh, Mr. Menuhin. Mr. Menuhin. Yes? Uh, Mr. Menuhin, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Benny. Benny? Yes, Jack Benny. Jack Benny? Oh, yes, how stupid of me not to recognize you. How's Ida? <laughs> No, no, you're, you're thinking of Eddie Cantor. You see, I'm Jack Benny, the radio comedian, although my real talent lies in the field of music. And incidentally, I want to congratulate you on your rendition of uh, Habanera. Thank you. I know that comes from your heart. Yes, which I intended to play myself. <laughs> I'm sorry that happened. If you had spoken to me before the program, I would have certainly substituted another number. Well, it doesn't really make any difference because I have other numbers up my sleeve too, brother. <laughs> but I was just thinking, Mr. Menuhin, rather than my playing a solo, it might be a good idea 
if we played a duet. Now, what do you say? Well, I think it would be rather interesting. <laughs> Is there anything in particular you'd care to suggest? Oh, I don't know. I'll sort of leave that to you. Uh, what would you suggest? Well, what about the uh, Perpetuum Mobile of Paganini? Well, I... Uh... What was that? Uh, what was that, Mr. Emanuel? Uh, Paganini's Perpetual Mobile. Perpetual mobile. mobile. That's mobile. correct, yes. Well, we're back to Kaiser Fraser again. <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, Mr. Emanuel, that song has been done to death. Isn't there, um, isn't there something else you can suggest? Huh? Well, what about the Rondo Capriccioso of Sansan? San San the... <laughs> the Rondo... Rondo what? The... Capriccioso. Capriccio. Capriccioso, oh, yes. I, I don't know. That number never seemed to get anywhere. I, I mean, people, people don't hum it anymore. <laughs> Look, uh, Mr. Menuhin, how about our playing Love and Bloom? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's very catchy, you know. Love and Bloom. I'm sorry, I don't believe I know that one. You don't? He's supposed to be one of the world's greatest violinists. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Mr. Manuel, let's you and I play How About Intermezzo? Intermezzo. Uh, how would that be? That would be fine. Good, good. Now, look, you take the first train, I'll take the second, and we'll alternate through the number. You see, then there's a place in the middle where we play together in harmony. Now, you take the first train, Mr. Manuel. Uh, yes, Mr. We, we better tune up, I though. Think I think it'd be a good idea if we... Could I have A, please? <laughs> Don't mind if I practice a little. Did you? Did you say that was an Amati that you had yes, there? Yes, an Amati. It, uh, hard... Unless you got a good joke, I wouldn't go any further. <laughs> Is that the only violin you have? Oh, no, no, I have two. Is that, is that your, your only? No, I also have a Guarnerius. Oh, a Guarnerius, besides yeah. a Stradivarius, yes. I see. Well, yeah. I have uh, two violins, too, you know. I play both of them. Both of them? Yeah. Both of them together? Yes, yes. Oh, yes, that double chin, I see. <laughs> Could we have an introduction, please? You take the first one. Can you tell the difference? <laughs> I 
itself, you know. That's not written at all. Why don't you come well, in? I can be here till Sunday, four o'clock, you know. I'm waiting for you. <laughs> you don't do that fast, you're dead, you know. Mind if I join you here? Oh, please. Wonderful Jack Benny and Yehudi Menuhin. Say, Don, isn't that Jack Benny's friend, Mr. Kitzel, applauding off stage over there? Well, yes, yes, Ken, I think it is. You know, he might be interested in giving Jack and Elson for a Christmas gift. I'm going to ask him. Oh, Mr. Kitzel, Mr. Kitzel. Somebody is calling Mr. Kitzel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hello, Mr. Carpenter. Hello, hello, hello. Well, hello, Mr. Kitzel. Say, Mr. Kitzel, I was just mentioning to Don that you might be interested in getting Mr. Benny and Elson watch as a Christmas gift this year. Of course, giving Mr. Benny and Elgin is just a suggestion. Of course. Uh, who suggested it? Mr. Benny. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll agree, Mr. Kitzel, it's an excellent idea. Excellent, excellent, yes. <laughs> you know, Elgin now features the exclusive DuraPower Miracle Mainspring, made from an entirely new alloy that won't rust. It eliminates 99% of repairs due to steel mainspring failures. Uh, just about how much would you care to spend on Mr. Benny's gift, Mr. Kitzel? Uh, with me, money has no object. Money's no object? If money was the object, would I be working for Mr. Benny? <laughs> well, regardless of the cost, there's no more cherished gift than an Elgin watch. And what a novelty for Mr. Benny, waking up Christmas morning and finding a lump in his stocking. Oh, pish-pash, a novelty, a lump in his stocking. With Mr. Benny's legs, he's got plenty lumps in his stockings. <laughs> well, an Elgin watch would make a wonderful change, Mr. Kitzel, for the new Elgin's amazing new DuraPower mainspring ensures greater accuracy and precision. It's just one of the many new features I'm sure Mr. Benny would appreciate. You know, when you really get right down to it, Mr. Benny is a man of wisdom. You know, Mr. Benny's sage. Yes, 28. <laughs> no, 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 I, I mean he's a thinker. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> well, I don't have to say another word, Mr. Kitzel. The new Algin speak for themselves. A timepiece that's unexcelled for beauty and skilled craftsmanship. You right, Mr. Carpenter, you right. You know who wants a pickle in the middle with the mustard on top for an Elgin watch for Christmas? I am going to a shop. <laughs> Say no more, Mr. Carpenter. You sold me on the idea, and I'm rushing out right now. To buy an Elgin for Mr. Benny? No, to buy an Elgin for Mr. Kitzel. Goodbye, Mr. Carpenter. <laughs>
Isn't it true that it's often the little things that we're most thankful for? Touch of a hand, kind word, memories shared with somebody you love. We think of them on days like this, but why not every day? Why not? Well, maybe because we're only human. Like a girl named Linda Clark, for instance. An average, ordinary person. Might be you, or it might be me. I'd like to bring you briefly Linda's story called Those Little Things by Betty Wright with radio's most accomplished couple, Kathy and Elliot Lewis, as Linda and Tom. Linda had no way of knowing that today might be her last on Earth. But I knew because, well, I'm her guardian angel. I tried to help her make it a good day, every passing minute of it. But let me show you the kind of trouble we guardian angels have, because already the clock is ticking off the seconds in what may be the start of Linda's final day on Earth. She and her husband, Tom, are still asleep. Hmm? Linda? Linda? Hmm? Seven o'clock. You want me to put the water on for coffee? Mm -mm, I'll do it. Okay, honey, I'll run in and shave. You sure you don't want me to get things started? No, thanks, Tom. I'll be up in just a second. Just a second. Just a second. Tricky little things, those seconds. Have a way of getting by before you've done the things you meant to. Because Linda meant to get up and get breakfast. And to Tom, who's in there shaving, it could make a lot of difference. He's got a problem on his mind. He wants someone to talk to. He wants sympathy, advice. That's why I tried at this point to get through to Linda. Linda. Linda, get up. Make him a cup of coffee and some fried eggs. Let him talk to you. He needs to. Let him tell you about that deal he's worried over. What do you say, Linda? But Linda didn't hear me. Those extra seconds that she spent in bed, they put her back to sleep again. It wasn't until Tom stopped to give her a gentle goodbye kiss that she awoke. Hmm. Tom. Tom, what time is it? 7.30, honey. Oh, Tom, and I didn't get your breakfast. Oh, that's okay. I can always grab a bite downtown. Linda, you remember that man from Wichita that I hoped to close a deal with? Well, something's come up that's got me kind of worried. What did you say, honey? I'm sorry. I was half asleep. Well, that deal I was telling you about on Saturday... Oh, Tom, so... if it's 7.30, aren't you going to miss your bus? Well, I can always take a... Well, yeah, I guess you're right. Go back to sleep. And so, Linda, you went back to sleep and let another span of precious seconds pass. While Tom went to town with his unsolved problem on his mind and gulped a cup of coffee at the drugstore. And what did you do? You finally got up bathed, dressed, had yourself a waffle, three slices of bacon with your egg, two cups of coffee. No wonder you're putting on a little weight, my dear. Then you made up your shopping list. Oh, what'll I have for dinner? I really ought to get something special that Tom likes. That's right, Linda. Make it up to Tom for not getting his breakfast. Now, let's see. He's always crazy for those French fried onions and a lean roast. Oh, the roast takes so much watching. Takes so long to cook. I'll get something else that takes less time. Time. What's time for? Except to make some other person happy. Every precious second of it. 
Time isn't something that you save. It's something that you give. But anyway, you started for the store. On the way, you had to pass Mrs. Weber's house. Mrs. Weber had been sick in bed for three months. You had yet to visit her. And so I told you... Linda, drop in and see Mrs. Weber. Her house is just ahead. She's lonely, Linda. It's not easy being bedridden. She'd appreciate a visit. Oh, dear, I suppose I ought to stop in and see Mrs. Weber. That's a good girl, Linda. She'll wonder why I haven't been in. She came to see me when I was sick. Yes, she certainly did, and brought you flowers. Of course, she didn't have anything to do but visit. Besides, I hate to go in without bringing her something. Oh, now, that's just an excuse. You know, it's company she wants. And on the other hand, I can't pass the house without going in. She'll see me. Yes, she sure will. In just another minute. So I, I think I'll cut across and down that side street. And so you took a precious second more and used it to neglect a neighbor. You didn't mean any harm. People don't when they pass up the little things, but it's the little things that count. Like the letter the mailman brought when you got back. Oh, there, Miss Bright. Hope you've got some nice mail for us, something with a check enclosed. <laughs> I can't guarantee it. Here you are, one letter. Uh-oh, just the opposite. Looks like somebody wants money. You were right, Linda. Somebody did want money. A relief organization asking for a contribution for the suffering in Europe. Money to buy clothes and food for those who had none. Those whom every minute, every second, brought a little closer to starvation. This winter will be a severe and even tragic one for those in Europe. Children are starving. Their parents lack the strength to work, to rebuild a devastated land. This is your chance. You can spare at least five dollars. Everybody's asking for money just when prices are so high. It takes all I can scrape together for necessities. You had a manicure last week. Cost you a dollar and a half, remember? Maybe I can send a dollar and a half. Oh, now, Linda, you can do better than that. I really should do better than that. Well, we could really afford to give, well, well, maybe five. That's right, Linda, five. That's good. You'll feel better. You'll be glad. I'll go get your pocketbook and take out a bill. Oh, but heck, tomorrow will be time enough. Time enough? No. You missed it again, Linda. It's too bad you didn't send that money now, because in Belgium there's a little girl for whom time's running out, too. Soon she won't be able to look forward to tomorrow. It won't ever come for her. She might have felt a lasting friendliness toward this, our country, because you sent her a bit of food. Remember, Linda, this may be your last day on Earth. One never knows. If you did, I think you'd act quite differently. Of course, Tom doesn't know about it either. But it's after supper now. He's eaten the liver you so easily prepared for him. Yes, you settled for liver at the store, remember? It takes less time. And you're sitting before the fire. Linda, how'd you like to get out that album of old records? We haven't listened to him in a long time. It's a good idea, Linda. There's something about music, old familiar music, that brings people closer. Where are those old records, honey? Especially that one, If you were the only girl in the world. Da -da. Now's your chance, Linda, to share this evening with Tom. Remember, it may be your last. But, Tom, you promised me you'd fix that toaster. Oh, Linda, not that. Not the toaster, now. Oh, that can wait. It's been a long time since we played those records. Well, you're always yelling about the burned toast and I make it in the oven. It won't take you all night. Oh, all right. Where is the darn thing? In the kitchen. 
Oh, don't look so unhappy, honey. I tell you what, you fix the toaster and I'll run across the street and borrow that dress pattern from Jane. And then when you're through, we'll listen to the records. Okay. All right, honey. Careful crossing the street. Oh, don't worry about me. I'll be all right. So you started for Jane's across the street. You should have waited to play those records, Linda. You should have turned the lights low, snuggled up on Tom's lap and listened to that favorite tune of yours and Tom's. Would have been nice remembering. Remembering the Halloween dance, the ride home in Tom's coupe. That was the first time he kissed you. Remembering the night you told your mother that he was the one. The happy tears in her eyes when you married him. The time you and Tom quarreled. And the time you came back for keeps, the baby you talked about. The plans you'd drawn up for your home. These were the little things. These were your life. Time's running out, Linda. And with it, your chance to make good all those little unaccomplished things. You're crossing the street now on your way to Jane's. The lights are dim, the corner's sharp, a car's coming fast, it turns. You don't see it. Linda, Linda, watch out! Well, folks, that's the story. The story about little things. Of course, nobody knows what day is his last day on earth. Look at me. That's how I got here. Why, I'm Linda's guardian angel. And as guardian angel, I could tell you about your last day, except I'd be violating ethics. Might be tomorrow, next year, 50 years from now. Might be any day at all. Which makes those little things so terribly important. Because, folks, it's the little things that make the big things. Drops of rain that make a rose grow. Kindly acts that lead to love. Words of prayer that reach to heaven. Give it a thought for me, will you? Hear that sound? That's the beating of a human heart. Yes, a human heart, the pulsating mechanism that pumps steadily throughout the lifetime of each one of us. Now you'll hear a different kind of sound, the sound of time in its flight. The electrical impulse that produced that steady beep, beep, beep had its origin in the famed observatory of the Elgin Watch Company, the observatory that times your Elgin watch to the stars. Time accurate to hundreds of a second. This time is the precise standard used by Elgin craftsmen while they're making, testing, and adjusting Elgin watches. Elgin Observatory Time is also the official time of United Airlines. And now to keep this star-timed accuracy, Elgin's new DuraPower mainspring gives a permanency of timekeeping performance and freedom from trouble never before possible in any watch. For this miracle mainspring completely overcomes rust, the greatest cause of mainspring breakage. The Elgin DuraPower mainspring eliminates 99% of watch troubles due to steel mainspring failures. Surely the person for whom you plan the gift of a watch this Christmas will be so much happier with an Elgin. <laughs>
The Elgin Watch Company will continue its two hours of stars Thanksgiving greeting right after a short pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. KNX in Los Angeles. The Elgin Watch Company's sixth annual two-hour Thanksgiving Day greeting begins its final half hour with Margaret Whiting, Red Skelton, the world's famous violinist, Yehudi Menuhin, Alan Jones, the Elgin Orchestra and Chorus, and the direction of Louis Silvers, and your host, Don Amici. Once again, may I extend Thanksgiving Day greetings to those of you who have just cleared your table, washed the dishes, and gathered around your radio with family and friends to share this day with us in the warmth of good cheer and fellowship. This Thanksgiving, it's our good fortune to be able to bring back many of Elgin's stars for an encore. When we asked Alan Jones to be prepared to sing for us again, he very graciously suggested that instead of a solo, why not make it a duet? A duet with a young coloratura soprano you heard earlier this afternoon, Mary Jane Smith. This, uh... It should be quite a thrill for Mary Jane singing with you, Alan. Well, if this were the Elgin Christmas Day program, she could sing with Lawrence Melchior. Oh, but I'm looking forward to singing with you, Mr. Jones. Really, Mary Jane? You think I sing better than Lawrence Melchior? Oh, no, uh, but you're much better looking. <laughs> uh, thank you. I've admired you ever since I saw you in The Firefly. Well, there you are, Alan. Hasn't you wonderful manners? Yes, wonderful manners and uh, a wonderful memory. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you got almost as early a start singing as Mary Jane, didn't you, Alan? Oh, I started music school when I was about six. I had a soprano voice and long golden curls. Well, the teacher must have thought you were a girl. She did. I'll never forget the day I had my curls cut off. I bet the teacher was surprised. So was the little boy who used to carry my books home for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan, this is such an impressive moment on Elgin's Two Hours of Stars. You and Mary Jane about to sing together. I really ought to introduce you as, uh, oh, Signor Raffinello and Madame Gallipacci Galli. Well, why, why Signor Raffinello and Madame Gallipagucci? <laughs> well, who's going to believe two great operatic singers could be named Smith and Jones? <laughs> However, I think any doubts will be dispelled when we've heard you sing Oscar Strauss's beautiful While Hearts Are Singing. Elgin is proud to bring together Alan Jones and Mary Jane Smith. is bringing love once again Listen in gladness Melody red Melting a sadness In good hearts are singing Love is for you Lips will be clinging Dreams will come true Springtime is calling Love is his man Summer twilight was fading We sat in the garden alone As rivers of night serenading The trees with a mystical tone The leaves 
seem to thrill to each measure The bars beating time to each train Mary Jane Smith and Alan Jones. You made all our hearts sing. The infectious, grinning goodwill of one of radio's greatest entertainers can be felt right through your loudspeaker. Elgin gives you the man who never comes in out of the rain because it's moisturized. Red Skelton! Thank you very much, Don. And uh, I brought along a little story from the Skelton scrapbook of satire. It's called A uh, Child's Thanksgiving. Verna Felton will be the grandmother, Lorene Tuttle will be the mother, and Pat McGeehan, the grandfather. Junior! Oh, good heavens, he slipped out of his shackles again. <laughs> Junior! Junior! Uh-oh, the voice of me censor. <laughs> yeah, kiddo. Come here, it's Nama. Well, I knew it wasn't Mrs. Hush, you know. Oh, there you are. Huh? Junior, I don't know what to do. The turkey's missing from the icebox. Well, what do you want me to do? Take his place or something? No. Hmm? I just want to know if you know anything about it. Well, uh, please, I'm busy playing pilgrim doctor now, if you don't Junior, mind. Hmm? answer. Good heavens, what are you doing with that turkey under the sun lamp? Well, the turkey was cold. He had goose pimples all over him, and I was trying to warm him up, you know, make him look like a turkey again. Shoot, come here to me. No. Now, you've practically ruined my Thanksgiving dinner. No, no, don't, don't you hit me, don't hit me. I'm not going to hit you. Well, what are you doing with that broom? Going to brush your teeth or something? <laughs> you, you look, you as much as lay one little pinky on me, and I'm going to tell on you. You'll tell what? I will tell everyone that you came across on the Mayflower and that you had a crush on the captain, too. I did not. Oh. I'm not that old. Oh, no. <laughs> We're coming to Plymouth Rock. Captain Standish, you're really a great seaman. Kiss me, my Puritan hero. Yes! Junior! <laughs> you come here to me. Come here to me. No, no, no. I ought to teach you a lesson. 
That ought to teach you a lesson, too. Next time, wear your glasses. That turkey's all black and blue where you spanked him. Which reminds me, I can't find my glasses. Well, that's because I put them on the kitty cat. The cat's wearing my glasses? Sure, Why? You, you said that you wished that he wouldn't fight with the other cats on the block, so I thought if he was wearing your glasses, the other cats would leave him alone, see? Junior, hmm? honey, please behave yourself while I put this turkey back in the oven and help your mother prepare the dinner. How long before we eat? I ain't hungry. Boy, I hope you cook something I like yeah. today. What um, do you like? Oh, hmm? What do you like? Oh, I like chocolate-covered chocolate with chocolate syrup. <laughs> <laughs> You have a sweet tooth, Junior. Well, I wish I knew which one it was. Boy, I'd eat it. I know that. <laughs> hey, when are we going to eat? I'm hungry. Yeah. Just as soon as the turkey's done and your grandfather gets home. Oh. I wonder what's holding him up. What's holding him up? Mm-hmm. I could answer that, but it would only lead to bloodshed. Now, Junior, you mustn't think such things. Your grandfather only went down to the bakery to get some rolls. Yeah, and as usual, he'll come home with a bun on, boy. Mother, what happened? Oh, Junior tried to cook the turkey with the sun lamp. Uh-oh. He would. Junior, go upstairs and wash your hands and face and get ready for dinner. Okay, Mommy, y'all. Not going to wash, not going to wash. And Junior, hmm? don't forget your ears. Why, did I leave them there? <laughs> oh, go on now, go on. I'm going to wash me face. I'm going to wash me face. I'm going to wash me face. I'm not going to wash with water, though. I'll just dab on some cold cream like me mummy does. I just a little dab here, dab, dab, dab. Here, dab, 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 dab. Oh, my, my. Oh, my, I'm going to look like Lady Easter, boy. <laughs> now, let's see. Now, I'll rub the cold cream off with me towel. Now, where's me towel? Let's see. This one says mom. This one says dad. Here is mine. The one with a skull and crossbone done. <laughs> now, I just wiped the cold cream off for me widow kisser. There, now, back for the face inspection. You're going to go and get me face inspected. Well, I might as well use the banister. Here I go. <laughs> me slingshot in me pocket got caught on the top post. <laughs> Here I is, kiddo, ready to make a glutton out of me, Tom. All right, now, let's see. Did you wash your face clean? Well, at least it's just more of a tattletale gray now. It's not... Now, Junior, <laughs> I want the whole story. Did you wash your hands? Yes, ma'am. Your face? Yes. Your ears? The one you talk in, yes. <laughs> How long are it going to be before we eat? Oh, I'm hungry. It won't be long, dear. Junior, come and look at the turkey. It's almost ready. Miss him, miss him. <gasps> oh, boy, he nice and brown and fat. Am I going to get a drumstick, huh? Oh, keep your hands off that turkey. Why, will he bite me? How could he bite you? He's dead. Dead? Yes. When are we going to hold services? <laughs> Don't be silly. Hey, Nemo, when, when a turkey is born, does he know he's going to wind up on a platter? Oh, I don't think so, dear. Now, stand back so you don't get burned. You know, sometimes I wish I was a widow turkey. I would have hopped out of me egg and just run around, chase worms, and, and, and take anything anybody would want to feed me. I, I would eat everything I could get me beak on, you know. And then I would strut around the barnyard and, and gobble, 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 like that, you know. And then finally, one day, some man would come over, and he'd say, I is a butcher. And then he would buy me, and he'd fill me for the rock so I would weigh more when he sold me again. <laughs> And then somebody would come up with a great big axe and he'd chop me head off and then they'd pick all me feathers off of me. And boy, I would stand around and shiver and goose pimples would hop all over me, you know. And then they would base me and put me in the oven and... Oh, no, 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 no! What, what happened? I scared me down! Oh, 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 oh,
Bless his little heart. Yeah, bless your heart. Now, stop crying, Junior. I get, can I have a drumstick? Well, you can have a drumstick if you're a good boy. Yeah? You'll be fed according to the way you behave. Mm-hmm. Well, looks like I get the nick again, boy. I wonder what's keeping father. Well, don't worry about him. You know when he gets home, you'll hear his sirens on the police car. Junior, you've got to learn to respect your elders. Well, don't bore me out. Goodness me. I, 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 you tell me to respect me elders, but I don't consider you my elder. You is so young, so pretty looking. Why, I just imagine you as another widow kid. You is so I young. I still think that... So beautiful, you is, Jim. Do you mean that, Junior? Sure. Anything wrong? Here, Junior. A big kiss for you. <laughs> Boy, that old P.T. Barnum knew what he was talking about, didn't he? <laughs> Oh, somebody at the door. Somebody at the door. I will see who it is. Oh, don't run. You might trip and fall and knock all your teeth out. And I don't want to have to vacuum again. Boy, yeah. <laughs> well, you sure does love me, don't you? I see who's at the door. I see who's at the door. Oh, hello, Grandpa. Hello, Junior. What are you staring at me for? You look so pale. Are you sick? No, I wash my face. Come on. Let's go eat. Let's go eat. Let's go eat. <laughs> Are you hungry? Yeah, I'm so hungry I could eat a bear. Of course, a bear could eat me, too. Hey, Grandpa, if I ate a bear and a bear ate me, which would be inside of who? And why? Well, there's a brilliant line in it, huh? <laughs> Sorry I said that, boy. <laughs> in fact, I didn't. I, I lost my place. I didn't know what I was. <laughs> Is that your grandfather? Yes, it is. Well, let's eat before the food gets cold. Yeah, come on. Wait till you see the turkey and the cranberries and the mashed potatoes. Oh, boy, what a dinner. Hurry, Grandpa. Boy. I'm sure glad we, we cooked that old turkey. He was the meanest thing I ever saw, that old turkey. He didn't like me, you know. Oh, did you tease him? Oh, no. Might have plucked a feather here and there to play Indian with, but didn't tease him, you know. Was, well, I was all set, boys. A good thing you killed him when he did, you know. I was all set to wait till he go to sleep and then tie his feet to the perch. I'd fix that old boy. Oh, <laughs> no. Junior, where do you get such ideas? Well, I don't waste my time, boy. When I'm not doing anything, I'm building up emergency in uh, reserve, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm just a widow, kid. I can't read that stuff. Now, don't lie. <laughs> My, my, what a beautiful dinner. Yeah, isn't it nice, huh? Isn't it nice? Yes, Junior. God has been good to us. Yeah? Maybe if the entire world took time out to give thanks, there would be less disturbance and starvation. Yeah. You sit here, Junior. Yeah, okay, come on, let's eat, let's eat, let's uh, Junior, eat. watch your manners. Why, somebody gonna steal them? <laughs> come on, let's eat. Now, just let's... a second, young man. Pat, will you say grace? No. No, I think today Junior should ask the blessing. He's old enough now. You want me to ask for blessings? Yes, that's a splendid idea. Okay. Go ahead, Junior. I will say, I'll ask the one, I'll say the one that Grandma has been teaching me now. Everybody bow your heads, bow your heads now. Dear God, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. Junior, you're supposed to ask for blessing. You're reciting the Constitution of the United States. Well, if that isn't a blessing, I never heard of one.
You know, I'm sure God will approve, especially now when so many are misusing it for, for its real meanings, you know. The child's right. I don't know of a better reason for giving thanks to our Almighty. It's a wonderful blessing, Junior. Don't let us interrupt you. The blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. That was terrific, Red Skelton. Good music is one of the most joyous things life has to offer, and it is fitting that on this day of Thanksgiving, Elgin can again invite you to listen to the world-famous violinist, Yehudi Menuhin, as he plays Dini Q's exciting Ora Staccato. Wonderful Yehudi Menuhin. You know, Don, it's too bad Red Skelton had to rush away so soon. We got a chance to see Junior, but uh, what happened to that other character from his show? The fellow from the country, uh, Clem, uh, Clem... Oh, uh, yeah, Clem, uh, uh, Clem... Uh, Cleedlehopper's the name. <laughs> <laughs> they ain't hard to say, you know. Just shift your tonsils into second between the cadiddle and you'll hopper right over to it. Well, howdy, Clem, howdy. Howdy duty to you, too. We've certainly heard a lot about you. Lies, nothing but lies. 
<laughs> Can't prove a thing, brother. Now, wait a minute, Clem. You mustn't feel that way. I think of you as a man of distinction, perspicacity, and, uh, may I say, intelligence. Well, you can, but it won't do you any good. <laughs> well, I've uh, got to be going. I'm busy. I'm, I'm working on a new invention, something to carry around my pocket that will tell time to. Oh, uh, you're inventing a watch. Yeah. Well, how do you like that? I got started on it, and somebody steals the idea already. <laughs> Well, Clammy, just a little late getting started. Watches were invented in 1500. Besides, if you need a watch, you'd want the newest model available. You'd want a new Elgin watch. What makes you think that? Well, because the new Elgin watches are not only the most beautiful and most accurate timepieces ever made, they contain the greatest watchmaking development in 200 years, Elgin's miracle DuraPower mainspring. Oh. You see, DuraPower eliminates 99% of watch repairs due to steel mainspring failure. Mm. And you know how inconvenient it is to always have to get something fixed. Yeah, they still can't make me work right, I know. <laughs> now, Clem, I, I don't think you understand. Oh. You see, all it takes to break the mainspring in an ordinary watch is a tiny pinpoint of rust. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> what causes rust? Oh, uh, no, yeah. High humidity with a sudden drop in temperature causes condensation of a droplet of moisture inside the case. Well, do tell. In other words, Clem, it rains inside your watch. Well, that's California for you. <laughs> you see... <laughs> You see, up until now, Clem, that rainy condition inside your watch was an awful nuisance because of the old-fashioned spring in there. Well, there's a spring in there. Well, no wonder it gets wet. Well, <laughs> oh, Clem. <laughs> Clem, you're a moron. And my father before me. <laughs> Say, tell me something, Mr. Carpenter. Where can I get one of these uh, Dewar Power ma mainsprings? Well, the famous Lord and Lady Elgin's and Elgin Deluxe. In fact, all Elgin watches have these new miracle mainsprings at no extra cost. Lovelier than ever, Elgin's now give you a longer-lasting accuracy. This year, there are more reasons than ever for wanting an Elgin watch. Yeah, good thing you were standing there. I wouldn't have had anything to say, would I? <laughs> Is your brain in working order? Yeah, but my mainspring's busted, I know that. This is our Thanksgiving day. In a world of want filled with the homeless and the helpless, where despair and bitterness keep company with fear, our very nation itself has become the symbol of plenty. As we gather together this Thanksgiving in our homes throughout our country, we give thanks that our homes are in this country, our country. It means so many different things to all of us, but all of these things described so stirringly in a New York Times editorial. It is the land itself, the sun coming up behind the white mountains and setting in the glory of the Golden Gate. It is men at work, the farmer, the fisherman, the truck driver, the clerk in the office. The housewife doing the dishes and sending the children off to school. The teacher, the doctor, the priest, the minister, the rabbi. It is the pilgrims dying in their first terrible winter. The Minuteman standing his ground at Concord Bridge. It is the wagons and the men on foot going westward over Cumberland Gap, floating down the great rivers, rolling over the great plains, to settle on their new, their own lands. It is men standing up in every generation to fight for the old ideals and the old rights at risk of ruin or of life itself. These are flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, blood of our blood, a lasting part of what we are, each of us and all together. 
It is a great multitude of people on a pilgrimage, common and ordinary people, charged with the usual human failings, yet filled with such a hope as never caught the imaginations and the heart of any nation on earth before. The hope of liberty, the hope of justice, the hope of a land in which a man can stand straight, without fear, without rancor. This is our country, its people of every race, color, and religion, giving thanks to God for all that is ours this Thanksgiving day. Jones, that was inspiring. This is Don Amici saying it's been wonderful celebrating Thanksgiving with you, and it will be my pleasure to be with you again on Christmas Day. Ken Pops, presented by the makers of Chiffon Flake, and I'm Ken Meats, and Lum and Abner, presented by the makers of Alka-Seltzer, usually scheduled on Thursday afternoon, although many of these stations were not heard today due to the special broadcast you have just heard. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The previous special broadcast canceled the programs usually heard during that time for today only. This is KNX Los Angeles. That was the sixth annual Elgin Thanksgiving special as broadcasted on November 26, 1947. We will be playing seventh annual Eglin Thanksgiving Festival, Bob and Ray and Ma Perkins in the next episode. Well, that is it for this episode of Airchecks. Airchecks is a three-hour podcast uploaded every Saturday and Sunday. See you at the same time on the same channel.